VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're looking to get on the program, it's easy enough to do. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So you just heard Brian Medora saying the VOCM newscast that Alex Nook got his seventh of the year last night, seventh goal of the year last night. And I didn't get a chance to say it yesterday because I was away, and thanks to Linda for sitting in for me. Dawson Mercer with the second two-point game of the season on Tuesday night with a goal and an assist. Now, in the world of minor hockey or amateur hockey, we all know that for many people it's cost prohibitive. Right? It can be pretty expensive to enroll your children in hockey, certainly expensive to, out, uh, to equip them with all the necessary gear to play a little bit of ice hockey. And since 2002, the city of St. John's has been trying to help out the residents for that exact purpose. So it's called the REAL program, the Recreation Experiences and Leisure program. So in the years past, they were able to help about 1,500 children per year, whether it be with helping out to pay registration and certainly to help out with gear. Now they can only satisfy 66% of the requests. As your kids grow through minor hockey, just like mine did, you have the basement full of old gear. They grow through it so quickly that all of a sudden you've got a big stockpile of gear in your basement or out in the garage or whatever the case may be. So for the folks working at the real program at the City of St. John's, if you've got some gear kicking around, let's make sure you get it in the hands of organizations like them or the Breakaway Foundation or your minor hockey association so that we can satisfy those needs because the cost can be absolutely real. Okay. So yesterday, the storm that wasn't. Now, I'm not going to take a pot shot at meteorologists because it's an imperfect science, and for people working in that field in this province, it can be thankless to say the very least. So every now and then, they're going to get the forecast wrong, and that happened yesterday. But even if it had to come to pass where we got 10 or 15 centimeters here in the city or surrounding area or wherever you live in the province, we have really gone from a place where people were willing and wanting to go to work, go to the bars, go to the restaurants, and go to school, you know, with those types of conditions, 10, 15 centimeters. Now, with you know, nobody disputes the uh, concept of air on the side of caution. Nobody wants to put people in harm's way. So when we talk about the big storms and businesses being accommodating to their employees, letting them go home before it gets too uh, uh, messy out on the roadways. But boy, oh boy. Like, even with the forecast as it stood yesterday, when we thought, well, the rain will start early afternoon, and then it's going to turn to snow, and then we're going to get maybe upwards of 30 centimeters in certain parts of the province at elevated conditions, but it didn't happen. And again, this is not taking a swipe at the meteorologists, but, I mean, there was a couple of, there was a school yesterday here in the city. It was closed for the entire day, you know? Then they were letting the students out early, an hour early yesterday in the other schools here in the city. People were closing up shop at 12 noon. And as you all rightfully understand, you were able to go out for a nice, pleasant walk, you know, right until the late afternoon. So I don't know what the threshold quarter should be. But the complicating factor for parents of children to get them from their school an hour early and or schools being closed for the entire day and or businesses shutting up shop and or restaurants seeing all the reservations canceled because of the pending doom of the snowstorm that didn't happen. So what's the right answer here? 
you know, it really does feel like we're pretty quick to shut the place down and to close the schools when the forecast might indeed, let's just say, 15 centimetres were in the forecast and it actually fell. Does that really mean that we can't, you know, continue to operate in a northern country like Canada, in a province like this? Well, we understand the winter complications. We understand the need to have on quality snow tires on your vehicle. We understand the need to want to proceed with caution and uh, measure how f- close you follow behind the car in front of you. I, I don't know. I mean, yesterday it was just one of those head scratchers where, boy, the place shut down pretty quick and really nothing happened. But again, I get it. It's not easy to take a, a forecast and be 100% accurate 100% of the time, but it just feels like we shut her down pretty quick here these day, these days and it's not going back to when i was young we walked to school uphill both ways and 100 centimeters we still kept going that's not the point at all but it does feel like we've kind of gone a little bit the pendulum has swung a long way to the air on the side of caution your thoughts you want to bring them forward you know what to do on that front so here in the town, uh, the city of St. John's, so on the snow routes, the streets that are, uh, that are designated as snow routes, the on-street parking ban begins tomorrow, runs until the 31st of March. Then the wider ban on overnight parking goes into effect on the 3rd of January, runs until April the 5th. We understand why, right? Because when people purposely put their car on the street on the short side of their driveway so they don't get that big uh, side plow dump at the end of the driveway, people do it, right? It's just part and parcel of how some people operate. But I don't know why we can't have just a little bit of discretion or a little bit of common sense associated with the parking van. I'll go back to the fact that one Friday evening, fell asleep on the couch, and lo and behold, when I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning to then go to put my vehicle in the driveway, I already had a ticket. And what was the weather circumstance that night? Nothing. No rain, no snow, not a peck on the street, no plows out, no salt, uh, no salt trucks out, but yet I still got the ticket. So... Let's just see whether or not the city can, you know, use some discretion when it comes to these on-street parking bans. We know why it's in place, understood, but when it comes to a ticket when there's nothing happening, I'm not so sure. All right, let's keep going. So one thing that absolutely happened yesterday leading into the potential for a bit of weather was folks, rightfully and humanely, worrying about folks who do not have a safe, warm place to lay their head. And so this goes back to the issue regarding the tents in Bannerman Park. All right. So the city is unwilling to open up the bathrooms in Bannerman Park, given the concepts of damage and fire and drug use and the like. City staff are unwilling to go in and do the cleanup after the fact. Okay. But even when it comes to the concept, I mean, this is just madness. The concept of even having somewhere to go to the bathroom. It's 2023 in the first world country of Canada, and we have a homeless problem all across the country. But when it comes to the concerns that are in front of us today, are we really debating whether or not we can actually put a porta potty there? Look, it, people aren't wrong to say that it's a problem if and when the bathrooms are open and there will be extensive damage done, the cost of cleanup, the manpower that's required. But even in the world of a porta potty, you know, can we just not figure this out? I get it. People will be talking about some of the vacant government buildings and repurposing of the buildings and whether or not we should have better standards and oversight and monitoring in the emergency shelters. All fair conversations. But can we really not figure out whether or not a porta potty can be put down there or two? I mean, it's not like it's never happened before. When we have big concerts in the park, there will be a long line of these porta potties. But somehow, we can't satisfy that very basic need today. Let's put it this way. 
nobody really wants to be well I shouldn't say that because plenty of people out there are cold and callous but for the most part the people want to see assistance given to those who need it you can't build a house overnight and have them all sheltered in a permanent housing solution but is it realistic and I'm going to come across as the cold one here now let's just say some additional assistance is provided, even something as fundamental and as simple and as easy as a porta potty, if they're going to get beat up, take them away. You know, should there be a conversation amongst the folks who find themselves in this life circumstance where they're in a tent in Bannerman Park, can the conversation happen amongst that population of hard done by people, people who are in desperate need of assistance, if some of those folks are willing to beat up something or other, and then the concept is, you will, harm, you will harm the masses. You know, your one piece of negligence and your unruly behavior will see the porta potties withdrawn. I don't know what the answer is, but I just find it mind-boggling that we can't come up with some consensus about even the provision of bathrooms. I mean, anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. So we have been trying for quite a long time to schedule some time with the interim dean of the Munn School of Medicine. That's uh, Dr. McKean. Uh, she's coming on today. So I think that's at 11 o'clock. Am I remembering that correctly, Dave? So 11 o'clock with Munn's med school dean. So there's a petition floating around about how the practice-ready assessment seats work, whether or not we have enough of them or frequently enough at Munn's Med School. So we'll take that on. And whatever else you want to talk about regarding Munn Med School operations, they have a standalone budget from the uh, general budget of operations at Memorial University. So there's obviously lots to discuss with Dr. McKean. And if you'd like to put something in my mind that we can broach with the good dean, we'll be happy to do it today. And again, and I also think Yvette Coffey is going to come on with some reaction to the conversations regarding the travel agency nurses. Yes, many of these agency nurses will indeed be people from this province who will simply move from working as an RN in the public system to getting paid more with more flexibility as a travel agency nurse. Okay. We do need to understand how and why these particular nurses are being offered shifts and overtime before those on the casual or permanent list working for the public health authority. There's something strange going on here. I mean, the numbers don't lie. You can make numbers lie, but in this case, I don't think they do. So if over the course of 12 months, it would cost the public system $18.4 million for the travel agency nurses to be producing these overtime hours versus $4.1 million for the nurses already in the system, it's a head-scratcher. I can't wrap my mind around exactly how and why this is happening. We do know that unless we have a full roster, a full complement of nurses working for the public system, there's going to be the need to fill the gaps with these travel agency nurses. But can someone explain to me, whether it be Minister Osborne or folks who are boots on the ground in seniority positions that can uh, answer this fundamental question? Why? Why are we doing this? You know, why are we spending more money than necessary? Now, on the other side of that coin, many of those who are on the public system payroll, casual, permanent, or otherwise, they have been telling us that they are burnt out. And the whole concept of their work-life balance has been absolutely obliterated. So it's either one, they want the overtime shifts, two, they don't, or three, just an explanation as to how and why we're spending more money than necessary in the concept of having registered nurses on the floor in the various wards. Anywho, you want to talk about that. 
Let's go. And I heard Brian Medor say that there's an update coming today about the progress or the status of the new mental health and addictions facility built on the complex at the Health Sciences Center. Uh, I don't think people are talking about the concept of it's being built on a floodplain any longer. And the whole issue regarding mental health and addictions being viewed and talked about uh, just like it is in the other healthcare realm. So I understand why we're trying to erode stigma by having it on the same complex, and we'll see what the conversation or the update sounds like today. But, you know, bricks and mortar is important. The water for it is dilapidated. It's certainly not the kind of surroundings for people who are indeed of need. But just building a new building doesn't mean we necessarily change our approach and our tactic and our spending or focus on mental health and addiction. So you need to see both. Good new surroundings, modern facility, terrific. But we've also got to make sure that even on the government's own pledge and commitment to spend X percentage of the healthcare budget specifically on mental health and addiction, I think that number is 9%, and I don't think we've achieved it. Even if we look at some of the information in the Towards Recovery Report, there's not a lot of measurables. You know, let's say if we're talking about wait times to get your hip replaced. We know what the national standards are. We have the updated numbers here. When we talk about mental health and access to treatment when we talk about addictions and access to treatment i don't think we've got the measurables in place like we do in other arenas okay and on that front so today active as based on a ruling coming from the crtc 988 is the suicide prevention services hotline it's active today for calls or texts the numbers are pretty staggering when we talk about it i know this is not the most easy conversation to have but we have to talk about it. So it's a really smart idea to have an easily memorable number like 988, similar to the 911 services, that even as children, they're told that number, if and when you find yourself in an emergency situation, you dial 911. Same thing for 988. The numbers across the country really do need to be discussed. Approximately 12 people per day die by suicide in this country. There's 4,500 deaths per year. Suicide rates amongst men, three times higher than women. You know, with the whole machismo and bravado, and I'm guilty of it sometimes too, I suppose, but being vulnerable is not a character flaw. You know, if indeed you need help, lads, then please do indeed get it. This can be done anonymously for, uh, through 988, so don't hesitate. There's lots of folks out, out there that have these suicide ideations that can indeed get some helpful uh, conversations going with this particular service. So if you need it, just dial it. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth and young adults between 15 and 34 years of age. So 988 is out there active today. If it's a service you think you can use, just please go ahead and use it today. Just do it. When we talk about the behaviors and ideation, 12% say that they've had thoughts of suicide in their lifetime. 2.6% of Canadians have had thoughts of suicide in the past year. Plants, 4.2% have planned suicide in their lifetime. Less than 1% have planned suicide in the past year. So let's just make sure. And I get the conversation is extremely traumatic, can be awkward, can be confusing, but that number is out there and it's active today. 988 if you need exactly that. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to your calls. How are we doing out there, Dave, by chance? So yesterday, when I'm away, we can count on a couple of people who will take that opportunity to make a call to the program, which I find a little bit funny. But there was a call yesterday about the death penalty. Apparently, the death penalty now is on uh, one side of the political spectrum or the other, which is a strange way to approach conversations such as the death penalty or 
uh, capital punishment. It was on this day, 237 years ago, in 1786, the first known date of the abolition of the death penalty in a Western nation state. It was commemorated called the Cities for Life Day. It was a decision brought forward by the Grand Duke Leopold II of Tuscany. He later went on to be the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor, did away with the death penalty on this date in 1786. It's an interesting conversation to uh, undertake. And, you know, it's basically getting a pound of flesh, right? An eye for eye. An eye for an eye where, indeed, the whole world goes blind. It costs more money to have someone on death row than it would be for life in prison. Well understood and well documented. We have various uh, issues regarding whether or not people have been wrongfully convicted. But uh, Rob, I guess, uh, took the opportunity today, yesterday to call. I shouldn't be giggling, but I just find it funny that he'll only call when I'm not around. Anyway, that was on the docket yesterday, apparently so. All right, very quickly. So the federal government with their hand-fisted Bill C-18, the Online News Act, I guess they've reached some sort of agreement with Google for Google, that tech giant, to pay $100 million per year uh, to the local media outlets. Meta, or Meta, the uh, ownership group of Facebook and Instagram, they're blocking Canadian news content. Look, there was lessons to be learned from how this was approached, for instance, in the country of Australia. Canada, I'm not so sure we had the appropriate type of negotiations and conversations around crafting this piece of legislation. It's not fully enacted as of yet. So the $100 million deal is struck. The amount of advertising dollars gobbled up by those big tech giants is enormous. And yes, you can talk about business models. If your model doesn't work, then you have to so-called, and I hate this word, to pivot to a better, more manageable, profitable model. Easier said than done. Advertising dollars are hard to come by in the first place. But when you have the easy go-to, like, and I know many people do it, including me, you just go to the Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or your Google search bar and get your news via that medium. And then, of course, the, uh, the advertisers know exactly the behavior of folks, and consequently, they're doing exactly that. But I guess the deal has been struck. I don't know what's going to happen with uh, Meta and the uh, Facebook and Instagram platforms, but if you want to take that on, we can do it. Oh, also, today is the National Day of Action on Child Care and Early Learning. I think we're anticipating a call on that front today, today, Dave, are we? Because, you know, we've got it right on the affordability side, but maybe not so much on the accessibility side. And last one before we get to your calls. And I saw someone say it's a big day in hell. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State under two different presidents, is dead at the age of 100. Gerald Ford will call him a super Secretary of State, and others have branded him quite clearly as a war criminal. Here's a quote coming from Anthony Bourdain, the late Anthony Bourdain, who, of course, famously visited this province for one of his uh, episodes of his show on CNN. And here's how it goes. Now, Kissinger absolutely was behind secretly uh, bombing and invading Cambodia, who was a neutral state even during the heights of the war. And here's what Bourdain said. Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. 
While Henry continues to nibble nori rolls and ramaki at A-list parties, Cambodia, the neutral nation he secretly and illegally bombed, invaded, undermined, and then threw to the dogs, is still trying to raise itself up on its one remaining leg. We're on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line follower, sir. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two and say good morning to the executive director of the Jimmy Pratt Foundation, a member of the steering committee on the National Day of Action on Child Care and Early Education. That's Nuria Aylward. Good morning, Nuria. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Do I pronounce your name properly or how is it properly pronounced? I, rem- I rhyme it with area. Okay. So, Nuria. Nuria. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the program. So we've done a lot of, pardon me, the governments have done a lot of things regarding early childhood education, you know, revamping the pay scale for early childhood educators, talk about affordability, but we've still got a long way to go on accessibility and understanding the importance of early childhood education. What's the focus today? That's exactly it, Patty. Um, You know, I think that the federal and provincial investments over the past few years have really shown that when childcare is accessible, like first $25 a day, then $15 a day, then at $10 a day, that people use it and they want to use it. And in a way, it's kind of a good good problem to have because it shows that we have good programs here in the province. I mean, our early childhood educators are well-trained. Um, they deliver awesome programs, and people who have their kids in childcare are usually really happy with it. Um, and it shows that when it's affordable, that people use it. So now, what we're asking the provincial and federal governments to do on this day of action is like, let's finish the job. Um, really, what we need to do is expand quickly um, without compromising on those really that high quality. Um, and you know, by treating childcare early childhood educators better. Um, and by building more centers. It's actually pretty straightforward. (laughs) We need to build more centers and put more staff in them. Um, And that's just going to require more money. Um, But we think it's money well spent. We can't afford not to do it. Families really, really need this service. When we talk about our children's development, and then you add into it, you know, uh, issues regarding the need for both caregivers or parents to be working because cost of living issues are out of control. It's very much unlike the 1950s and 60s, the so-called good old days, where one could work and one could stay at home. It's not that simple any longer. When we talk about the children's brain development, the vast majority of your brain is developed by the age of five. So when we mold young brains and give them that thirst for curiosity, thirst for education, that a lot of that happens before they even enter into kindergarten. Now, your brain is not fully developed until you're maybe in your early 20s, but a lot of it is done at the very young ages. So we have we got to understand that and understand that early childhood educators are not just, quote-unquote, minding your children. They're helping to mold your child's brain to prepare for education. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the fact that we're even having this conversation on the news um, really shows how far attitudes have come. Um, and, you know, so much has changed, again, since the 50s and 60s in this province. You know, families are smaller. And I think some one of the big things that we talk about is that kids need other kids. Um, if your child only has one sibling, like, you can be the best parent in the world. Um, but kids need other kids to, to, to learn how to socialize, to learn how to treat each other. Um, and that's what happens in an early childhood education setting, like childcare. They're playing, yes, um, but through play, they learn how to they learn how to be a person in our society. They set the foundation for how to learn. And I always think of this story that a kindergarten teacher who was a kindergarten teacher for years before she retired told me. And she's like, when kids arrive in kindergarten, if they don't know how to say their ABCs or count to ten, I don't worry about that. We're gonna learn how to do that. 
what I worry about is the kids who don't know how to take their turn, who don't know how to stand in line, because those are the things that are so foundational um, that you can't, that, that are much harder to rectify later. It's a sign that kids haven't had that social development um, that they need. It's social and emotional development. That's the foundation for everything else that comes later. Um, and so, you know, what, what's neat about childcare, especially in our province, is that we've taken this approach that we want early childhood educators to be teaching it. And I think the provincial government has done a great job on that, um, requiring that the people running these programs know what young children need. Um, <clears throat> But on the other hand, you know, it's not, they're not just dropping them off. And, you know, in some other provinces, the regulations are much more lax. Like, you don't have to have the same kind of training in child development. Um, but in our province, you do. And so kids are getting this learning, but at the same time, like you say, parents are getting the support that they can go back to work because wages just haven't risen um, enough. Oh, and look, they don't, uh, they haven't risen enough over the past 20, 30, 40 years compared to our cost of living. Parents don't have a choice, even if they wanted to, to stay home. Um, you need two people earning income. So it's not, it's what's great about childcare is it hits so many, it helps people in so many ways. It helps our economy because it gets people back to work. Um, you know, employers are big advocates often of childcare programs. Um, it helps kids. It helps them set that foundation for learning for the rest of their lives. It helps parents, you know, be able to continue their careers. And it also really lowers the stress in the family, which has a big impact on kids. When you're really worried about making ends meet and there's that uncertainty, that has an impact on the mental health of the family. Um, you know, I, I've spoken with doctors who say, you know, we're dealing with a lot, with a lot, they're seeing a lot of depression with young parents and anxiety. And they're like, it's not about being a parent that they have depression and anxiety and mental health concerns. It's because they don't have childcare. It's because they don't have that support that they need. Um, and so, you know, we know that it's good for its health economy, um, for, for education. There's just, it's really a fantastic investment. It's great to see that we're starting to make it, but we just need to finish the job. I think we underestimate the importance of the socialization component of early childhood education and or daycare. I mean, if you don't learn how to care and share at a very young age, then you'll have a hard time learning it throughout your youth and into your uh, teens because it shows very, very clearly those who have got it and those who do not and their behavioral uh, behavior issues in school and their ability to make friends, keep friends, and understand the concept of caring and sharing. It's a big deal. I, I, I know it to be true because I, I was a stay-at-home dad for about three years, yeah. and when I saw some other children who were really not getting that socialization and those types of I'll call them soft skills it was different it just really truly was let's talk about the economics of it you know people will say well I don't want government to be subsidizing childcare because if you have your own children then you have to pay for your own children and I get that concept of responsibility but for the community at large without any children my kids are in their 20s so I don't have the need Mm -hmm. for childcare but I understand the economics of it you look at the model that was created for a long time ago in Quebec it has proven to have a massive economic upside people with their ability to give back into the workforce consequently paying taxes, consequently moving up the hierarchy in their company or their organization. It has had a proven impact, especially when we talk about, for the most part, women will be the primary care provider, but it has an economic upside. GDP increased in the province of Quebec. Women were back to work quicker. People were making more money, paying more taxes. There's an economic issue regarding child care. Absolutely. And I think you summarized that really well, to be honest, Um, is that, you know, there's and I've seen different numbers, but all of them show that every dollar that governments put into high quality, affordable childcare 
they get back. Um, and sometimes it's to the tune of $3 to $1 of investment. I've seen up to 5 and 8 um, And so it's, it's because people are going back to work. And there's also these spinoff effects, too. Um, I think about... You know, I talk a lot in, to rural communities, and there's this real, and these are places where everyone understands the need for childcare because they know that their doctor is going to leave if they don't find a childcare spot. Um, they know that the nurse practitioner is going to leave, the teacher is going to leave. Um, those issues are really magnified in small communities because, you know, if you're moving in as a doctor, you might not have family in the area who can help you plug the gaps. And people know that it's really precarious. I think of the example of Norse Point, for example, where they have a letter of endorsement, where they've put together for their child care center. They, it's been an, a proposal for a number of years. They haven't been able to find the money to build it. But they have support from their city council, from their health authority, from local business owners, and from parents, and from early childhood educators. The, the early childhood educators think, this will create a good job for me in my hometown. I won't have to leave. The parents are saying, you know, it, what parents say, you know, I can get back to work. I can stay in my home community. The doctors, the health authority is saying we can maintain, we can keep staff. We can't keep staff if they don't have childcare. So it kind, it really does affect everyone. And I'm starting to see, I will say, you know, I do hear that, you know, why should I pay for someone else's kids? But I think people are really starting to see it, especially as the kind of boomer generation is getting older and watching their own kids um, struggle to find childcare, that a lot of grandparents are clogging, are not clogging, are plugging the gaps in the system. Um, in childcare now, some of the be- nationally and in the province, some of the best advocates are grandparents because they have a bit more time on their hands and they see how much the world has changed since they were raising their own children. Um, and so I think we're starting to have that to to start to understand, you know, that this affects all of us. You know, we don't think twice about paying for K-12 education because I think we've we've had it for so long. Um, But now we're starting to understand how far-reaching the effects of, on the one hand, child care, but also early childhood education are for our economy. Even if you don't have kids, you should be, if you don't have kids, you're going to be benefiting from your employees having early, having gone through this from their parents from your friends right these are our neighbors eventually and our future citizens i say this all the time and i'm going to stick with it you know when we talk about what's of importance to uh, individual canadians regardless of your man or woman or what province you live in so it's the economy and jobs and health care and criminal justice and the environment and all the way down the list and some somewhere down near the nine or ten on the importance list is education you get a right in education yeah. which starts with early childhood education then all of a sudden we've taken care of the economy and jobs and taxes and health care and criminal justice and the environment and all Absolutely. the rest because it's just how it works uh, in my personal opinion uh, anything else you'd like to say this morning before we say goodbye? Yes, we have an open letter. Um, if you go to childcarenow.ca, there's an open letter that's getting sent most to federal and provincial government representatives that's saying exactly this. We love This is a fantastic program. We want to see the job finished, especially through spending on workers and on capital expansion. So we want great spaces for kids to go and great workers who can look after them. Nice to have you on the show this morning. Thank you for the, for the time. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye, Neria. Neria Aylward with the Jimmy Pratt Foundation talking about the National Day of Action on Child Care and Early Learning. And I look, people tell me all the time, I don't have kids. If you have kids, you can foot the bill for whatever their needs may be. That's a fair principle to have. But just think about it. How many people are able to have make that choice? If I can't find child care, what do I do? 
I stay home. Or I get mom or dad, the grandparents, to take care of the children, which is a pretty tough task. If anyone's ever had to chase around a two- or three-year-old around the house, it's not really necessarily the task you want to peep onto your parents and the children's grandparents. And it does come with an economic upside. It just does. I mean, people will reject that. And I'll have the same few emailers tell me that that's complete nonsense. But it's well-documented. It just is. So, again, I don't need access to uh, child care or early childhood education because, of course, my children are adults. But I think the benefit is absolutely real if you want to take that on or anything under the sun. All you have to do is pick up the phone and give us a shout during this break. When we come back, municipal politics in the queue. Don't go away. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number one and say good morning to Long Harbor Town Councillor. That's Billy Murphy on line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Uh, morning, Patty. I've, uh, there's another call coming in now. I'm just trying to put, take you off speaker. Okay. Uh, Sorry about that, Patty. Uh, before I start, short digression, I heard you mention uh, Henry Kissinger this morning in uh I learned some stuff uh, that you said that I didn't know and uh, appreciate that, but I also want to point out that uh, this morning uh, one of my favorites, uh, Shane McGowan, left us. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, according to uh, sometimes this morning, and uh, he's, uh, I was talking and listened to him today, and uh, he, only, he, did it, he certainly did it his way, and he probably only lasted this long because his great friend, Christy Moore, uh, follow them along so uh, uh, I just wanted to point that out yeah Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 amazing stuff yeah no I, I learned something from there but uh, I, was, when I, was, I was actually learning about shame when I heard you saying that and I, was, I was like oh wow and so I'm going to be listening to uh, some Pogues and some Christian uh, Shane duos today fair ball appreciate the I, information I, cheers buddy uh, so I'm calling from Long Harbor here now, and I'm just uh, doing one more reach out, and I'm, I, well, I'm going to wait this one out uh, to, and push it in front of a, a magistrate. There's, there's, there's the only right place to go, but uh, there's seven councillors on a local town council, right? And there's uh, there's two of us uh, uh, illegally. I'll use that word, suspended right now. And I just, on Monday, I got the seventh uh, official, was it, uh, violation of policy report form, uh, code of conduct complaint letter against me directly. And it keeps going back and forth and is all over uh, uh, municipal legislation. And well, that, that's the that's the battle they're picking because we are in this little town with the highest budget per capita in the country, and there's, the, the the group is up there. And as as uh, I mean, just there, and they always pull. Well, we're just volunteer stuff and blah blah blah. But doesn't anyway. Uh, eventually, the the I'm 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 working, but I'm pushing this one right until they bring it in front of a judge because it, it the. The laws, and it's just back and forth. And it's like Monday morning, another, another complaint letter because then I, I can, uh, I, I even tried so hard to get the media involved, and I think they should. Municipal affairs, they should sit there and they'll call, uh, they'll, uh, they'll, uh, the, uh, sub section fifteen one of the municipal code act, contact act, blah blah blah. I've got more legal 
and uh, the interpretation of the law. And, and they, they just, it's, uh, anyway, I'm just getting tired of it and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to push it. The, the, the four up there, the, 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 the great one who got his 40-year uh, thing there the other day and whatnot, for whatever reason, and I, I know I, I, I can hear your side. What exactly I, are we I, talking about, though? Be, uh, well, there, there is, is just, uh, listen, we're spending the money. We're looking after the, 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 uh, this little town. The, the, the locals, uh, if, if you're not paying attention and uh, whatnot, it's just, uh, you know, don't you worry. We, we, we got this handled. And I just wanted the, the, a little piece. And, and um, in, the, in, the, in the old age, I'm looking for that. And I'm going to mind my own business and shameless plug here now. Tuesday at the store in Long Harbor is going to be a hot lunch locally locally sourced. Sorry about that. I had to dig that. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, it's I I think there's a time to put a magnifying glass on this. It's it's, it's ludicrous. The, uh, all the media got to do is go pull around the town. Okay, just before we before we wrap this up, I mean, what should we be focused on? Just give me the the ten second capsule of what exactly we're talking about here. What was should, uh, what, what are you asking us to focus on? Uh, well, just why? If I wanted, uh, is like, like I said, seven complaint letters. Uh, the other counselors is kicked off because they don't. Uh, uh, the, uh, well, the the the, the Code of conduct policy created by the local municipality under the Code of Conduct Act under Municipalities Act of Newfoundland and Labrador, and how somehow they that's it, it's it contravenes the law and. There, because, and I'm, I'm going to continue to do it. I'm, 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 I don't have the the mental capacity to sit around that table with those people, but I might. I'll still sit in the public gallery. They really fight me on uh, on uh, re- recording the uh, the public meetings, and they're actually tr- uh, last meeting was there. The uh, uh, claim to be so righteous. Mayor, uh, he was going to call the RCMP, and I, I was like, "Oh, sir, the best guy." And I'll sit, I'll sit here and wait for for my. You're not allowed a public place. I it, it it amazes me how they claim the legal the, the the legal and and they don't even try the moral high ground because they know it's better than that. But the the legal high ground is like, boys, are you wrong? I'm telling you, you're wrong. And let's just do the town's business. Uh, the, the, and uh, anyway, and I'm just calling you that the whole province hears it, and the ears in in the Confederation building hears it, the media hears it, because this crew up there, enough is enough. And I don't, I can't do it anymore. I'm not. I don't take. I don't carry around me pain and pick battles. Now I get accused okay. of it all the time. As like, gee, uh, let me uh, let me find your little quote there now. Uh, if you can uh, do it quickly. No, no, no. Just I, I want to say, uh, displayed a level of anger toward council and the public that was alarming. I'm this reason I'm videoing everything because if you believe that. If you just read that documentation, it's ridiculous. And then when you look at the recordings of the meeting, it's like, 
Boy, and I've heard it from some highly respectable people, you seem like the only one that's trying to follow protocol properly and above ground. I know. You don't have to tell me. But these people, uh, uh, the next December 9th is the next town council meeting, and I've asked VOCM to come out. I've never never reached out to the media because uh, who am I? I don't have time. I have, I have better stuff to deal with. Okay, well, let's, let's wrap it up, Billy, before I take another call. Give her. Okay, appreciate the time. No, I, 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 just have something for food for thought at me, would you? Pardon? I called you because you're a thoughtful person. Throw something at me that everybody can hear. Throw something at you that everybody like. Yeah. I'm not sure what you're asking. A good point. A good, thoughtful point. A good, thoughtful point. Uh, I'm not really sure what that means, but let's give it a, a quick swing here. Come on. Okay. So, Henry Kissinger dead at the age of 30. He once famously said of the Marshall Islands where the U.S. were conducting nuclear testing, there are, there's only 90,000 people out there. Who gives a damn? Think about that one. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Bill. That's not what I was looking for, but I appreciate it. No, no sweat. Cheers. Uh, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line number three. Herber, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yes, sir. We got a fine lot of snow on this end, by the way. I'm calling from St. Lawrence. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, of course, there was a lot of snow fell on yours, uh, your peninsula. Not so much around here, which I'm not complaining about. What's on your mind this yeah. morning? Uh, I'm a, Patty, I'm a second-time caller and line-time listener. But I call in try to try to request a couple of songs and I can't get no can't get uh, can't get through to the boys at the VOCM. But what I'm gonna say is, Patty, I lost my wife there seven years ago during Christmas. And saying that now Christmas is not the same anymore, which which is not, right? It's only me and my dog and my cat. So anyway, there's some songs that are Patty that don't be played anymore. For example, uh, one is all I want for Christmas dear is you. Do you, I, I can recite some words for you if you want me to. If you're so inclined, go ahead. Okay. Presents wrapped in green and gold. There's no arms for me to hold. No lips to whisper softly. I love you. Oh, how happy I would be if I had you beneath my Christmas tree. For all I want for Christmas dear is you. That is one, Patty. Okay. That is a, such a beautiful sign. I don't know for the life of me, like I told you, uh, I said uh, you don't hear it anymore. And another one is Christmas tree always. Now, Greg Smith will be the one for that on Saturday morning. That sign, per, that would be perfect if you go past the word line. So, Happy to do it. And uh, what you should do is use this exact number after 12 o'clock to leave your request. Uh, no, no question that Greg and others are listening. So hopefully we'll be able to get your thoughts uh, regarding some songs you'd like to hear on the radio for you. No problem. So can you just give me that number again, Patty, please? Yeah, if you're uh, in and around town, so it's 709-273-5211. That's how you saw the town, Patty? No, that's if you're in and around town. If you're in St. Lawrence, I, I forgot that you said you were out there. So 1-888-590-5920-8626. 8626. I got your phone, my brother. Anyway, Patty, I just wanted to say uh, 
I'd like to wish you and all your staff at VOCM a very Merry Christmas and have a, have a good one, buddy. The very Thank same very to you, Herbert. As soon as you hang up, turn on your radio. Yeah, I will. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly, and a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and your family, everybody at VOCM. Thanks, Colin. Same to you. Wanted to uh, talk about a criminal case that went to our Court of Appeal here last week on the 23rd of November. This is a decision that's been posted online so anybody can read it. It's about a man out in uh, Rollington by Durham. He was uh, driving his uh, motor vehicle. He had two passengers in the vehicle. Uh, the car went off the highway down in an embankment. Uh, one of the passengers was killed, unfortunately, and the other one was injured. He subsequently was charged with uh, dangerous driving causing death and uh, dangerous driving causing bodily harm. Um, when police attended on the scene, and I'm reading this now from the Court of Appeal decision here, which was a 3-0 decision to uphold his acquittal that was given by the trial judge. Uh, the police... Uh, removed the vehicle from the accident scene, which they had the authority to do under the Highway Traffic Act. But uh, subsequent to that removal, they uh, engaged in uh, essentially what was a seizure of the vehicle for a criminal investigation purpose and uh, proceeded to search the vehicle and seize uh, something called the airbag control module, the ACM. And this is a, uh, a device that's installed by the manufacturer in the vehicle. Uh, at the time of assembly, it, it uh, gathers a huge amount of data on the vehicle, among other things, the, the, speed, the speed of the vehicle, about five seconds before, before the crash, and, and some other uh, uh, data, too. And uh, the police instructed a mechanic to search for this ACM, and if they found one in the vehicle, to remove it. Uh, they didn't have uh, a search warrant to do that. The, the instructor the mechanic to do that, uh, the specific police officer who, who I will not name. And this police officer had been told uh, prior to, engage, uh, prior to uh, searching for the ACM by a supervisor that he would need a search warrant to do that. And he proceeded to do that without a search warrant. So he disregarded the supervisor's instructions on this. Uh, the mechanic uh, found the ACM. The police seized it, you know, without a warrant. They looked at the data that was in it, and they subsequently charged this man with, with the criminal charges that he was facing. He was acquitted at trial. The Crown Appeal, the acquittal to the Newfoundland Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal uh, dismissed the appeal last week uh, in a 3-0 decision. Uh, I just want to focus on the comments of the trial judge. And what he found were extremely serious charter violations of this man, Mr. Genge. And uh, he said uh, that these uh, charter violations of the accused were not inadvertent or minor, were arising from an understandable mistake. On the contrary, they were extremely serious and reflected a troubling pattern of disregard for charter rights. The uh, police officer, who he names, which I will not name, attended the inspection of the vehicle, which was innocent, a search, and proceeded to specifically search for and seize the ACM. He did this while knowing 
he needed a search warrant to search the vehicle, and also knowing he did not have grounds to get a search warrant because he had no reasonable grounds to believe at this point that an offense had been committed. These actions, in my view, rendered the resulting Section 8 breaches extremely serious. To compound the seriousness of these breaches, the police officer failed to complete a report to a justice for almost three months, and when he did the report, he indicated that the ACM was seized pursuant to Section 489.2 of the Criminal Code when he knew that this was not the case. The effect of this was that he avoided judicial oversight. And the judge goes on to further trial judge, further characterizes as a reckless disregard for constitutional rights. I find that absolutely appalling. Fair enough. What always strikes me in these types of stories are, are people who are involved as investigators and other moving parts involving investigations. They understand what the law says. And yet time after time after time, whether it be not getting the appropriate warrants in place or whatever the case may be, they just keep doing it. I just don't get it. I mean, it's not like they're uh, being they're ignorant of the law. They're just willfully sidestepping it. Yeah. And you were told by a supervisor, maybe a sergeant or a staff sergeant or a corporal or, or, you know, somebody above him, that if you're going to undertake this search, you need a search warrant, which means you've got to go to a judge. And uh, there has to be reasonable probable grounds that to believe that there was an offense committed and you're going to find evidence of that offense in the vehicle, right? And you've got to go before a judge and do that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to disregard that advice or instruction. I'm just going to go and, and tell the mechanic if he finds the ACM, sees it, and we're going to get the data. Yeah, for, I mean, there will be inevitably people listening that, you know, that may indeed think that who cares if there's a crime has been committed then let's get the person that will investigate them will punish them or pardon me will put them through the court process and then punish them but the problem for those who think like that is that when you sidestep the law and the requirement for warrants then consequently the person you want punished is very likely going to walk free because of it what that's called is rule of law and due yeah. process under the law fair enough and that's what separates us from uh, putin's uh, russia you know and countries like that, where, where the, you know, the, the leader of the country will just take you. If you don't like you, you don't like me. And they'll just take us and throw us in jail because we're shooting off our big mounts every day, right? Fair enough, Colin. Uh, anything else? Because I'm right up at news time. No, that, that's just astounding. I just find that, and this is not a, a, a breach, you know, a lot, a lot of cases will go to court where an accused will argue for exclusion of evidence based on a charter violation. And the judge determines that there, there was indeed a charter violation, but it was a minor violation. Uh, and the police made that minor violation acting in good faith. And the evidence is included and not excluded. The judge will admit the evidence and the accused is convicted, notwithstanding the breach. So I understand there has to be a balancing of individual constitutional rights and society's right to have the case adjudicated on the merits and the seriousness of the breach and things like this. But this was a police officer who was told by a superior that you need a warrant to get that information. And he just went ahead and said, I'm not going to do that. And two people died. One person died in this accident. And the other person was seriously injured, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with the case. Uh, I appreciate the call this morning, Colin. And once again, I uh, appreciate the Merry Christmas sentiments and the same to you. Cheers. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
It's amazing that tomorrow's December. Wow. Uh, a story we didn't get to off the top, but it made a big splash here in this country when the Prime Minister talked about the Indian government's involvement in the assassination of a Sikh separatist in BC. Now, yesterday in the United States, there was an unsealed indictment talking about the plans based on the Indian government to assassinate a bunch of people in North America, including three on Canadian soil. So there's an Indian government employee who's not named specifically in the indictment, but has worked in security management, was a member of the Central Reserve Police Force, including the Intelligence Department in the country of India. Uh, the uh, plot was for $100,000 for an assassination. I mean, it's just pretty wild stuff. I don't know if that's tempered any of the reaction we heard from people opposed to the Prime Minister's decision to make that public statement, but that indictment story from the United States, the unsealed indictment, is fascinating stuff and really obviously quite dangerous. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's a ton of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with the VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Say good morning to uh, Paula Soper with The Real Program. She's the coordinator thereof. Good morning, Paula. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for having me here today. Happy to have you on the program. I brought it up in the preamble because, you know, something close to my heart is making sure that youth who need and want to get involved in organized sports have the money to do so and the equipment to participate. So tell us what's happening with your program at the City of St. John's. Well, I will say this. On my way to work this morning, I heard it, and I was away on holidays, and I was uh, I was saying to myself, oh, I wish, I wish we could get online to talk more about it. So I'm actually really, really happy that this happened. So the real program is um, it's recreation experience and leisure, and it provides opportunities for children and youth who are fi- facing financial barriers to participation in recreation and any kind of sports leadership and learning programs for them to participate. And the greatest thing about this program is that um, the City of St. John's provides the staffing and the office space. However, 100% of all the funds raised, donated, goes towards placing children in the programs of their choice. So that means registration fees, equipment, transportation fees are all covered by the real program. It's pretty important stuff. Is it income threshold? Uh, Do you have to be under a certain income in the net household income to qualify for your, your program? Yes, there is a standard income uh, okay. that you would have to qualify for this, yes. And so this year, um, so what's happening right now is that in 2023, we received 1,079 applications for sport and recreation programs. And due to the limited funding, because everything that we do here, we fundraise for the real program. And therefore, uh, real was only able to place 66% of applicants this year. So, I mean, when it comes to financial donations, that's one thing, because we know that not-for-profits or charitable organizations, it's becoming more and more difficult because of the obvious. You know, it's hard to stretch a dollar like it was maybe pre-pandemic. The cost of living is really sore. But when it comes to equipment, you know, I would imagine, just like when we had to clean out our basement after our boys grew grew out of their equipment, we just found a home for it. So no question, there's people listening to the program this morning that know full well down in their basement, they've got bags of outgrown hockey equipment or other sporting goods that they could absolutely provide to you and your your group and we would appreciate any donation towards that so like for example with the hockey equipment we know that helmets expire so we are always in need for hockey helmets and sticks 
and in the summertime, especially if you're cleaning out and uh, like cleats or any shin pads, we would welcome that at any given time. And you can actually drop that off to one Crosby place um, in St. John's. When it comes to the hockey helmets, you know, because we did an equipment drive with the Avalon Celtics last year, and there was yeah. a ton of gear that came in, but when it came to the helmets, we were really trying to be attentive to the fact that sometimes there's a CSA approval on the helmet right. that has an expiry date. So, you know, how do you folks approach that? Because there's probably nothing really terribly wrong with the helmet, but it's the concern with the inside padding that has, you know, eroded to the point where it's not as safe as it was when it was first bought. So how do you approach stuff like that? Well, we would have to follow the standards and the guidelines for for the helmets, for sure. Yeah, it, it's a tricky piece of business. Yeah, so it is. So what kind of stuff do you really need? You're talking about soccer boots and uh, shin guards and hockey equipment and what have you, but are we talking about, like, everything? An old basketball, a football, a Frisbee? What do you need? Um, I think it's mostly, I mean, the the biggest... The most requests that we get right now are gymnastics and swimming, and hockey is definitely one of them, and soccer in the summertime. So anything related to any of those sports is something that we would, uh, you know, we would take at any given time. I think it's great. I mean, just how many people do we think are out there in the community that, you know, whether it be uh, mom and dad and they don't have the resource to allow their child to participate and a child who may indeed, you know, find a better path because socializing through sports, you learn some of these big life lessons, right? It's about the name on the front of the jersey versus the name on the back of the jersey and the camaraderie that comes from sports versus lifelong lasting. And absolutely, when we talk about idle hands and the devil's playground, getting involved in sports, it doesn't have to be organized sports. It could be just about anything but other than the free time that might manifest itself to be not that productive we can really do better when we talk about kids who never get a chance make sure they get a chance and you know i'd like to add to that because one of the things that this program does is not only for the children it's for the parents and the guardians it gives them a sense of community a sense of belonging and it makes them feel part of something so i mean it's a great it's a fantastic program that impacts a lot of people a lot of businesses and our community overall yeah it's a big deal hopefully this call and some of the new stories that are getting out there are going to see people having a look through their basement and or their wallets to see if we can't help out you in the real program yeah, no, absolutely, and I really, really appreciate you having us here today to, to speak to it um, because, you know, right now, and it's not only equipment, but absolutely the financial for fundraising, it's, and, you know, that's what we're doing every day, every month. We're, you know, looking and seeking for that to be able to impact more families and children in our community. So this ongoing initiative is called The Gift of Power, Give the Gift of Play. I think it's a great one. Stay in touch with us, Paula. We'll see if we can help you okay. out in the future. Okay, thank you very much for having us. My pleasure. Good luck. Okay, bye. Bye. That's Paula Soper. She's the Real Program Coordinator, and of course, Real is Recreation Experiences and Leisure Program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to our good friend, the news director at CHMR. That's Colleen Power. Good morning, Colleen. You're on the air. Hi, Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? (laughs) Pretty good. Uh, We're gearing up for our big CD sale fundraiser tomorrow here at CHMR. What's happening? Well, uh, it's been quite a while since we had any fundraisers. Of course, everything kind of stopped there before COVID. So uh, we uh, we also we often have uh, extra CDs, you know, kicking around doubles, and and they've actually accumulated to thousands and thousands of CDs. And you know, CDs are kind of on the comeback. Um, 
I think that uh, people are kind of getting a little bit, um, I don't know, they want to, they're getting a bit nostalgic with their music and people are collecting again now, vinyls, big cassettes and uh, and CDs are actually coming back and you can find, you know, your little personal CD players for sale anywhere now, like Walmart or I see people going around with Discman's again. So it's really cool, uh, you know, it's just to support our, um, our, our operational costs. We have, you know, uh, over 100 volunteers on any given day here at CHMR, and uh, we are we are your place for hands-on radio training, as you know, Party Patty Daly. <laughs> I cut my teeth at CHMR. <laughs> it's amazing. If you look around the media landscape, so many people had their first taste of it at your radio station. Absolutely. I've got a little... So I've been here now uh, 12 years. I was here 12 years in September, and just some people who have come through the newsroom, uh, Ben Murphy and Richard Duggan at VOCM, Ben Cleary at, uh, at NTV, Ariana Kelland at CBC, Hugh Campbell at OzFM, and, you know, Tom Power at CBCQ in Toronto. We've got Sarah Livingston at BBC Scotland, Heidi Pearson at Global TV in Halifax, Alison Sam at CBC New Brunswick and I could go on and on and on. You can see a detailed list of alumni on our um, our website at chmr.ca. Yeah, Fred Hutton uh, at CHMR as well. Yes. Just popped into my head. And, of course, it's uh, highly anticipated that uh, Fred's going to be the Liberal candidate down in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Uh, wow. I think Mike Campbell did some work at CHMR. Mickey That's T right. here did work at CHMR. So big, long, long list. Absolutely. And, you know, we provide uh, free training for, for MUN students. And uh, right now we're in the thick of uh, producing radio documentaries with the news department. And we've got uh, three or four students on board. We're at, actually episode four is coming on today at noon, so it's very exciting times. Absolutely. So give us a taste of what kind of CDs people might be able to get their hands on, because CHMR are not only a university radio station, but some of the stuff you don't hear on outlets like ours or Hits or K Rock or what have you, you get a little taste of it on CHMR, which makes it a really unique station. Absolutely. Uh, we play a lot of independent artists. Uh, a lot of artists that are under the radar, uh, you know, cult favorites. Um, so, yeah, our license doesn't allow us to play top 40 hits, which gives an opportunity uh, to play all kinds of local artists. You know, we, we really pride ourselves in supporting local artists. You know, we started out as a radio club in 1951, so um, we've been supporting local music since then. So, um, yeah, all kinds, Patty. There's so many different CDs there. Any genre you can imagine, like <laughs> some you can't imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. So what kind of price point are we talking about? They're all a dollar. A dollar a CD. A buck each, yeah. A buck each. So <laughs> a great opportunity. So what do people need to do if they want to bring their bucks along and buy some CDs? Well, so tomorrow um, morning in the loft at the UC in the University Center, uh, starting at 10 a.m., uh, bring, bring some bags or some boxes or containers. Uh, we have a few, but not a lot. And uh, cash only, so a uh, dollar each. Yeah, you can leave with uh, lots of stocking stuffers if for your favorite uh, CD lovers, for sure. Sounds great. Hopefully it's a uh, raging 
reaching success. I know when you talk about local, I saw a picture of uh, you and Jim Fiddler having an interview uh, opportunity the other day. Absolutely. Jim has an amazing new album, um, and I was delighted to to catch up with Jim. Uh, he's certainly a musical genius in my mind. He, he just amazes me. So I was really honored to sit down and have a chat with Jim, and I get to do that a lot with local artists and feature them, um, you know, and now we have actual podcast station where we can feature our interviews and you'll see them posted on, on our uh, on, on our social media. I think it's great, Colleen. You know I'm a big fan of you and the station, so hopefully this is a big success once again. Thank you so much and thanks so much for speaking to me this morning and thanks to your listeners, Patty. Uh, happy to do it, Colleen, and I don't know if I should say this out loud, but I'm going to. Uh, Downtown Girl is a terrific tune. <laughs> It is indeed. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> nice Love to speak it. with you, Colleen. Stay in touch. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Or take care of yourself. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, Corey's in the queue to talk about government funding for children with special needs. And Betty has uh, the want to make a donation. We'll find out more about that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Corey, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Doing okay. That's the easy answer. Um, first off, I apologize uh, if I'm a bit nervous or emotional uh, because this has been my life for the past 21 years. I have a special needs daughter, Kennedy, beautiful girl, born um, 2002, 21 years of age. So the chromosome 14 basically presented ourselves with global delays. Like she's still in the pool up, still changing her, still feeding her. Someone has to be with her at all times. She can't be left alone absolutely social butterfly but um along with this um chromosome abnormality come a lot of behavioral issues which is the hardest thing to deal with um but she's 21 years of age and went through the school system and um after 18 they're, they're allowed to stay in the school system up until 21. so patty the question is what happens when you have a special needs young adult at age 21 where do you go from here I started in September of 2022. That was uh, or going into her last year at Gonzaga High School. And I give a shout out to Gonzaga High School. They were absolutely amazing. Best five years, basically, of our lives because we finally, me and my wife finally found some support that uh, we knew that Kennedy was in a good place and she was well taken care of. And the staff at Gonzaga High School, simply amazing. Um, but now we are here. Um, we reached out to her social worker. And um, so where do we go come June 2023? Unfortunately, it was on me and my wife to hit the ground and try and figure things out. We found my wife found a, um, a mall. Um, it's a program there off Elizabeth Avenue, a uh, parent child center, and uh, went to my own private insurance. Nothing, like, nothing, no support from the government. I mean, they they throw out ideas and stuff like that, but like you got to do the grunt work. So I went to my own private insurance, did the assessment, did the hours of, of meeting with us, meeting with Kennedy, in-home um, visits, and uh, compiled a um, report or programming package to pass on to the social worker and come back pretty quickly denied. So I'm like, okay, where do we go? What do we do? And so basically all we get is that, okay, we'll find a personal care attendant, risk care worker, home support worker, uh, whatever label you want to put on to them. And, They'll take care of Kennedy to allow me to go to work and allow Tina to go to work. Um, so I don't know um, if you are aware, but finding a home support worker uh, is quite difficult. I mean, it's kind of been a revolving door for us. 
and uh, we can't find anyone to stick. We had one lady there for six to eight weeks, going good, but then she moved on to another position. So now we've got we've got one worker that basically shows up for my wife to be able to um, work. She only works part time. My wife, respiratory therapist, one degree, uh, basically lost her career, um, professional life after Kenny was born, which is a very sad story in itself. And now we're back to like me meeting Tina at Smokers Outline at two o'clock in the afternoon. Kenny getting out of my car and getting into Tina's car, and I'm going off to work. Um, it's supposed to get easier, Patty, but uh, unfortunately, um, it's gotten harder. There's, I spoke with Linda Swain there last month, I'm trying to bring this issue to light. And um, Linda Sequoia, if you could sit down, and I thought about this question many times since Linda posed it to me. If you could sit down in front of the premier and say, "What do you need? What do you want?" And the government knows how many kids are aging out of the school system at uh, 21. Uh, it's easy statistic to find out. And um, if I had to say, I, I think there should be a facility, even, you don't have to wait to 21, even for 18 years of age, so they can leave school at, at that point in time. But I think there should be a facility for parents to so choose to put their children in um, and have um, teachers, um, guidance counselors, um personal care attendants or, or respite care workers um, um, just to be able to put these young adults in that that they can still work with them, work with their challenges, try and make them more independent and even be like a school. All we're asking is basically somewhere like the school system, 9 to 2.30, 9 to 3.00, uh, 9 to 5 would be even better Monday to Friday. We're not asking for the government just to take Kennedy, which would be a lot more financial cost if I was just going to say, hey, here's my 21-year-old, hey, you guys house her, you guys take care of her, you guys provide the supports 24-7 uh, care. Uh, we're not asking for that. Uh, I mean, one of these days we're going to get to that point, but um, right now we're, we're, we're still in our late 40s and we're able to do it and, and we want to do it. We, we don't want to give her up, but we, but we need some support. We need some resources. We need some programming. So getting back to this Amal uh, programming that we found and that uh, got denied and I went back a couple of times with different um, uh, programs, different uh, packages that they put together and, and just recently this past week uh, denied again with Amal cutting out certain services and stuff like that, which, which they shouldn't uh, because we're not asking for a world, we're just asking for support. Um, and, and, and going through this program center, it would definitely be a lot more financially better for the government than having to take care of Kennedy 100%. Um, so, uh, have you tried certain certain different groups like Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador has programs for people with for uh, young adults with intellectual disabilities? I think is the way they put it, and you know whether it be the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities and others. So, there's have you tried all of these groups to see what support is out there for you? No, I haven't tried all all of these groups, uh, but I've did like I hit the ground running. I went to Vera Plan there in June and uh, walked in, and, and that place is amazing. They're at full capacity. Uh, I know one mom uh, was saying that their child was on the wait list for seven years. Like, you know, unfortunately, basically, had to wait for someone to pass away for a spot to open up. It should be like, okay, well, if we've got more need, there should be more resources to building expanded or what put into it. It shouldn't should be a process like waiting for someone to move out or something like that. There's nowhere for go. But 
I went in, I did a tour, they were absolutely amazing. They showed me, like, wow, this place is great. But I was just watching everything. I was watching the, the uh, especially the adults eat, and uh, they were sitting by themselves. And, yeah, they were messy, but they were to eat. And then I talked about washrooms, like Kennedy needs sisters to go to washroom. Basically, Kennedy's someone beside her at all times because every now and then she'll have this behavioral outburst, and whether she hurt someone or someone will hurt her, basically she needs someone adult that knows that animal Kennedy to be with her at, at all times. So I looked at the uh, manager there, and I said, do you guys have any one-on-ones? And he said, no, unfortunately, they have like two or three assistants for like 10, 12 um, special needs adults. And I said, well, I mean, I, I left that place thinking that, okay, this would be a great spot for Canada to come Monday to Friday, A, if the spot becomes available, and B, she needs a one-on-one worker there with her for her safety and everyone else's safety and for her needs. And I walked out of there as like someone ripped my heart out because I'm like, I really thought that this would be a place for her to go. What else is out there that's available? I mean, yeah, there are probably things out there available for her, but A, they need probably, they need a one-on-one worker or we need a one-on-one worker to go with her. Like we put her in Easter sales camps before she'd be in there for two, three hours and boom, they call us. We have to go pick her up. Um, so the challenge right now is there's basically no programming available from the government, and B, we need a one-on-one worker to attend with Kennedy wherever she goes, unless that programming is going to provide that support. Like when she was in the school system, she always had a teacher with her, and she also had a personal care attendant with her. So she always had two-on-one. And wherever she goes, she basically needs two-on-one. And what is out there is well we can't find anything try the folks at inclusion uh, inclusion canada so and obviously i would also suggest that you call the coalition of persons with disabilities because they'll know exactly what's out there in the community that might be of benefit to you and kennedy so i try those two groups as soon as you hang up with me yeah but i just want that people to understand is that like it seems to me that the government is okay with someone coming in and sitting with Kennedy and she being the house 24-7 sitting on her iPad. Like, as parents, I think Kennedy deserves something better. I think, yeah, Kennedy deserves someone to be that she's stimulated, that, that people's going to work with her and try and make her more independent within society and, and, and have that quality of life instead of just being stuck at home and, and giving a worker to watch her, to feed her, to change her, and, and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's just, I feel that after 21, that there's there's not a gap in the system, that it just falls off, and you're left on your own. And another thing I want to bring to light is that everything is on the parents. It's on the parents to figure this out. Um, like, i just give you some quick examples. Like, a, guy, a grandfather of a special needs young adult only reason that the young adult's mom was able to go work to the grandfather's got him all the time he's not aware of being able to be financially compensated as a worker for that child because he's with him all the time then i had a mother who had a, a, a worker that retired because she was in her 70s i was talking to her the other day she basically had to call her and beg her to come and sit with her daughter so she can go to the grocery store to get groceries then i had another father who's got a special needs adult talking to him and he's not even aware of like the income supports around government and stuff like this like why is it upon us to have to dig and turn over every stone like when the government knows these kids are coming out these adults are coming out and it should be put out there okay this is what's available to you why does it take us to 
turn over every stone, to, to knock on every door, to, to make every phone call. And every phone call, I spoke to, tried to get her back in the education system. I spoke to the, the uh, Minister of Education. Uh, I spoke to Minister of Community Services and Social Development. They all, and many people in the school board and government officials, my MHA, I, I called Dan, um, probably 8, 10, 12 different officials. And they listened to my story, and they said, oh, that's a sad story. We'll see what you can do for you. They hang up the phone, and they hope Mr. McDonald will call them back again. It's like such a dogfight um, for us as parents. And I touch base, I don't know if you heard Bradley Moss, a citizen representative, he had a report done on uh, I read it. complex special needs <clears throat> adults. Yep, I read it. After, and I heard him give that report on your show as I was driving home, and it raised every hair on my body because it was telling our story. And after I picked up the phone, I called him, and and I thanked him for bringing this story to light. And um, he said the government officials asked him, why hasn't this been brought before? And his response was, because they're tired. They're tired. They're trying to work. They're trying to keep things together. They're trying to take care of their loved one and, and provide what they can. And they're exhausted at the end of the day. Like, I go to bed. I hope I get enough energy throughout the night that I can get up and make it through the next day. That's how hard it is on us as parents. And people... I don't think are aware of it. it. It's it's very challenging. And even speaking to Mr. Moss, he said, Corey, he said, after compiling this report, he said, I had to take my staff aside and have a meeting with them to make sure they're all right. He said, because the testimony that they heard from the parents and the caregivers of, of us was the most impactful on the staff in any report he's ever done. Um, yeah, light has got to be shown. Um, on this issue, and the government's got to do a hell of a better job of providing us with some supports. Um, they know how many people are coming out at 21. Um, they they know they're they're doing program testing for kids one to four. Yeah, okay, you got to go to school at age five, and they're trying to match what kids are available with daycares and stuff like that. So that's great. But what about the end of it when you got a special population of kids that need? continuing resources need continuing support understand and i'm glad we had mr moss on the program to talk about this and i'm glad that you called today to give it another bit of focus so you know whether the government needs to do better and your suggestion is they do and i don't disagree at all but in an effort to get some uh, possible assistance today really do try the inclusion canada group because they may be able to either give you some help or point you in the right direction and if i knew more about where you should go next beyond inclusion canada and or the coalition of person with disabilities because i'd make those two calls just to see if you can't ease some of the pressure on you and your family uh, anything else very quickly cord before i have to go okay yeah uh, before you have to go see a mall which we found which would be great would take in the other school uh take in at home monday to friday and work with kennedy their biggest um clientele is community services social development for the age of 17 and below so what differentiates someone 17 below from my 21-year-old? And also, I also found out that someone above the age of 18 got approved for services to them. So some government official had to give the okay to give that approval. Why can't they give that approval to Kennedy? If they open this bag of worms and give the one, then, hey, our family needs the support as well. And I asked them to dig and find out who it was. They couldn't find it out. Okay. So there's programming there. There's programming available. Um, and how can... To differentiate 17 and below, community services and social development being their biggest clientele, 
And hours that they cut off at 18, and then somebody that's above 18 gets approved. It's a fair question, Corey. I appreciate your time. Make those calls and uh, keep me in the loop. Okay. Take care. Good luck. Bye-bye. Obviously, the gaps in the system is very real. Before we get to the break, let's go to line two. Joy, you're on the air. Hey, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I just want uh, drivers to be aware. I'm driving now. I left the city a few hours ago, and and roads got better as I went out of the city. But I just passed Clarenville. Well, I just entered the park. And roads from Clarenville to where I'm to now in the middle of the park are really bad really bad so there and people need to slow down it's crazy uh there are ice stops slush one lane is not cleared at all really it's cleared but the ice build up is crazy so people need to slow down and be aware of that and if you can avoid the area for now while we hopefully get it cleaned up please do exactly that i appreciate the heads up this morning joy you drive safe thank you you have a good day patty you too take care Right, bye-bye. So there you go. Clarenville, Glovertown, uh, and area. Roads are in terrible condition, so you know what to do. And it all it takes all of us a little bit of uh, forethought to change our driving thought process when we get behind the wheel during these winter conditions. Very quickly, if you're in and around town, and we know that the Christmas parade, the Santa Claus parade, was postponed from last week, and it's going to happen this Sunday, uh, beginning at 12 noon. Because of the change of the date, downtown St. John's has lost some of their parade marshals, so they're looking for your help. So parade marshal would simply be walking the route and helping all the different floats and groups get in the queue in the staging area. So if you want to do it, you're required to be there for 8 a.m., to about 2 p.m. Might be a bit of fun if you are so inclined. So contact Downtown St. John's if you can be one of the replacement Christmas Santa Claus Parade Marshals. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Joanne, you're on the air. Hi, there's an accident on uh, Peacekeeper's Way between Foxtrap and Kellegrews. The eastbound lane is blocked and blocked and traffic is backed up. Describe what you saw regarding the accident. Uh, There's a couple of ambulances there right now. It seems like there's a plow there. Um, Probably somebody passing, but uh, both lanes basically are blocked. The police aren't there yet, or they weren't when I passed through, so... It's going to be a while getting through, I would think. Another traffic update. So the poor conditions, uh, road conditions, Clarenville, Glovertown area, and now the accident on Peacekeeper's Way. So it's going to be a snarl there for a while. So, again, helpful information for those who were considering or having to go that direction. I appreciate this, Joanne. You be safe out there. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. So there you go. Another update. Uh, let's go to line number four. Betty, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, uh, I have some... Uh, food uh, donations to give to the Salvation Army okay. and I, I have no way of getting it there I have a, I had an accident I have a bad arm and I have a I had a cataract removed and I like to try to get a, somebody to pick it off for me okay and you want it to be donated to the Salvation Army yes okay uh, and you are in what are you in the city yes I am Okay, so I'll we'll keep your uh, actual address and stuff off the air, but we have your number here. So if anyone's around town would like to pick up Betty's kind donation and drop it off to the Salvation Army, just let us know and we'll let you know. 
Okay, then. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, Patty. Thanks for this. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your family and to all the people that have worked so hard at VOCM. The very same to you. Tell Dave thanks for his help. Happy to do it. So we've got your number. Thanks, Betty. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You too. Okay, bye-bye. If you are around town and would like to help Betty out, please do that. Give Dave a call and we'll sort it out. Let's go to line number two. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, Paul. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Patty, I called you a couple of weeks ago, local taxi driver here, uh, about Uber coming into the city and some concerns that I have and and the rest of the guys that I've been talking to, they also have the same situation. Uh, I was reading an article there on the old Google machine, and there's a write-up there about Uber and Lyft in Sarnia, Ontario. So apparently Sarnia, Ontario let Uber and Lyft come in there uh, to operate, now, under the provincial Ontario, I guess, for the province, they were under the understanding that the Uber and Lyft drivers were going through criminal background checks. Upon investigating it, uh, the councillor there, Terry Burrell, and the mayor, Mike Bradley, they investigated, and the Uber and Lyft drivers in Sarnia, at least, uh, they weren't subject to police background checks, so they had some concerns. So they're in the process of finding out why they weren't checked. Now, you said you had told me before that Uber has their own company that does that, apparently. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, in Canada, the law is clear. For a driver to be uh, an Uber driver, you have to do a criminal background check. So how they sidestepped it in Sarnia or anywhere else is actually against the law. Yeah, so it wasn't Sarnia. They were under understanding. So when they brought it to the provincial uh, government, uh, I can't remember the lady's name now in the article, but if you want to look it up, if you, if you look up Uber, Lyft, Sarnia, there's a, there's a thing there about the police checks. There's a lady that was on the board for the provincial government, and she she told uh, the municipality of Sarnia, Mike Bradley and Terry Burrell, the councillor and the mayor, that because Uber were shuttle drivers, they weren't subject to uh, police background checks. Well, less people making up classifications to sidestep what is a requirement, and even Uber itself requires it. So I don't know how people are getting away with eliminating the criminal background check. Yeah. So anyway, my concern is I actually reached out to Blue Light Taxi in Sarnia because I have a I have a, a relative living in Sarnia, and that's how I heard about this. What was going on? Uh, they've impacted their business. Their population is seventy five thousand people. They've in- impacted the taxi business, the locals in Sarnia, anywhere between, she said, I was told by the lady, anywhere between 35 and 40%. So they're starting to lose taxi drivers because they can't, you know, justify going to work and going home with the pockets empty, right? So my concern is, is what are the provincial government going to do here to put in place? Like I asked you before to get Abbott or or Studley or Fury or whoever, you know, they're the ones promoting it to see what kind of platform they're going to put out. So this doesn't happen, and it's too late. So now the municipality of Sarnia are putting resources in to Uber to do the follow-up checks with the police and everything, right, and taking up their time. And as you know, right across Canada, there's way more issues than, you know, taxis and Ubers, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I know in London, England, uh, London cabbies are actually taking legal action against Uber for loss of earnings and a variety of other things. So absolutely, before this actually gets passed, it's going to require legislation. And you're right, you know, the cities or municipalities will take on the taxi-related issues. The province has taken on the Uber issue for the obvious reasons, because it'll be crossing from municipality to municipality. So we're absolutely going to have them on to talk about the particulars and the concerns that you and others have. Yeah, and Patty, not just only that, like with with the, the Uber, like they got Uber Eats and and Skip the Dishes and uh, and uh, what's the other one, DoorDash and all that. I'm not trying to promote them by any means, <clears throat> but as a taxi driver, I showed in for the scattered coffee, as you know, right? And uh, get out of the car, stretch the legs, and win the line up. Uh, yesterday, I was at a Tim Hortons here on Torbay Road, and it was pouring raining, ground was soaking wet and everything else. And a Skip the Dishes driver had come in to pick up an order at Tim Hortons. Uh, he threw the bag that he was putting the food in down on the floor in the wet. And inside the bag, I guess, I suppose, was some kind of a, like a tin foil insulation thing and everything. But inside the bag, Patty, honest to God, I wouldn't put a bag of garbage or spare tire into it, let alone food. So I'm wondering, like Osborne there, the, the health minister or whatever, who's... Who's monitoring these fellows delivering this food? Who, who's, who's, who's doing the checks on their cars? And so when I walked out, I looked in the back seat of his car. There was more food containers and everything else in the back seat of the car than I'd say it was in the store. Like, so isn't that a health issue? could be. I don't know if there's any actual standard for inspections. Of course, with the vehicle, it would be like every other vehicle that does not require an inspection in this province. You know, we can talk about the need to have inspections when your vehicle reaches a certain age, which people are against because they think it's just a cash grab. But I don't imagine there's actually uh, a formal structure of inspection, whether it be health or otherwise, for these drivers, Uber, Skip the Dishes, DoorDash, or whatever the case may be. Right, but wouldn't they be required to have commercial courier insurance because they are food courier? I have no idea. Yeah, like same as me delivering an Amazon package, I would imagine they would have to have the same insurance to deliver food, right? So you require additional insurance to deliver an Amazon package? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. you got to have courier insurance, yeah. Okay. On your vehicle. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that, you know, and with me being taxiing, you know, and, and all the rest of the boys that are out there, they know what to, what to, what is like right now. It's slow. And, like, we're trying. We got, the, we got the apps. We got, you know, we got everything else. We're trying our best to accommodate our customers and, and you know, like shop local, buy local, spend local. And I'm just wondering why, like I said, just after COVID, when we're trying to get back on our feet, why the provincial government are so... Well, well, what they're doing, they're selling us out to an American company, same, same as they're doing with the health. That's what it seems like. I appreciate the concerns. We'll absolutely have the ministers responsible on the show to talk about it before it ever comes to pass. And it's coming. I think we all know it is going to happen, but we have to ask those questions, and I'm happy to do it. All right, Patty, I appreciate your time. Merry Christmas to you and your staff, sir. Same to you, Paul. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Paul. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Jessica Rendell with Heavenly Creatures. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. Before I get into the Heavenly Creatures business, I just wanted to say to you that um, I haven't listened to your show in a long time. I don't actually get a chance to listen to much in the way of radio or TV because I'm usually so busy with the charity. But um, I was struck when I was listening to, I think it was Betty, um, who was looking for a ride uh, for her donation to the Salvation Army. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, just what a sort of great sense of community you have going with the show. Um, and it's a fantastic source of information. I, I must do it more often. I so just wanted to say that to you because you probably don't hear that often enough. 
I, I hear a variety of things throughout the course of the day. <laughs> some good, some not so great. Well, I know you get some characters on as well, but um, part of doing it. the traffic updates and and just you know people being able to to you know air various issues. Just no, it's it's great. Good for you. I appreciate it, Jessica. What's on your mind this morning? Uh, so calling for two reasons. Uh, Heavenly Features has a couple of upcoming events. Um, of course, you know, a lot of people are struggling. The economy's not great, and we're seeing this reflected in our, our fundraising efforts, um, including with our Pet Pictures of Santa booking. So we're not getting quite the response uh, we would have liked. Uh, haven't done Pet Pictures of Santa in a while. The last time we did, we were absolutely maxed out with appointments. You know, couldn't couldn't have enough available appointments kind of thing, but we're slow this year. So wanted to put the word out to the public through your show that um, having the Pet Pictures of Santa event at the Pet Value that's on Ropewalk Lane um, and it's this weekend so all day on Saturday essentially and all day on Sunday so we're there 11 to 7 on Saturday 10 to 5 on Sunday we will accept walk-ins but we are encouraging appointments just you know to try to cut down on wait time so all of the information is on the front page of our website and that's heavenlycreatures.ca you can also find it on our various social media accounts $40 per pet um, if you want individual photo shoots but if you sorry cat they're in the background <laughs> Um, if you want um, to have multiple pets in the same shoot, it's just $20 uh, extra per pet. Another thing that I wanted to talk about is our upcoming Christmas pet food and donation drive. I think you and I have probably chatted about that in, you know, during previous years. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like the human food banks do, Heavenly Creatures put the, the call out there for pet food every Christmas. And again, um, you know, the last couple of years, we've certainly seen the state of the economy um, impacting our efforts to, to get pet food. Um, and I think a lot of your listeners have noticed the dramatic rise in the cost of pet food. It's quite shocking, actually. Um, and, of course, that costs have risen as well. So, like, for example, last year, Patty, and, and I don't know if all your listeners understand this, but Heavenly Creatures doesn't get any government funding at all. Um, we also don't get any regular corporate funding. I mean, don't get me wrong, at Christmas time, sometimes corporations will give us um, some donations, but largely we exist um, precisely because of you know, the individuals, right? So I always say that we $20 our way to the, you know, roughly $300,000 a year that it takes us to operate. Um, but last year we spent almost $175,000 on vet bills, and that was almost exclusively from, you know, again, people giving us $20, $40, $50, uh, and often through our appeals on, on Facebook. Um, but yeah, we're having our, our Christmas pet food and donation drive starting December 11th. It runs for two weeks. Um, so up to and including Christmas Eve and just wanted to kind of get ahead of it and, and put the word out there because the last couple of years, I mean, not that it hasn't been a little bit slow to start in the past, but the last couple of years we have really come down to the wire, um, essentially, you know, gotten to December 19th or 20th with almost nobody showing up until I've either gotten in the regular media or gotten on social media and really kind of screamed, so to speak. So hoping that if there are any workplaces that are listening or any families that are listening who haven't yet chosen their charity or could squeeze Heavenly Creatures in as, as another charity that they can support, we really need pet food. Um, we have to feed all the foster animals in our care, which there are often 60 to 100. We feed a lot of low-income people's animals. I mean, not the sole source of food, but we help them out when they're when they're desperate. Uh, we've also been working with the human food banks, or at least some of them, to um, try to provide them with some food so that they can get it out to their clients because, of course, not everybody can make it to our location to pick up food. 
right? All of those items that we need are on the website. So again, that's heavenlycreatures.ca. Um, our donate button is on the website. Um, essentially, we're going to be there every day as of the 11th for many hours per day, hoping that people show up with, with food and, and financial donations. Um, we're really hoping for corporations to step up. Hope so. Uh, just before we get to the news, you know, we've heard stories right around the country about animal rescue uh, organizations like yours. Given the fact that some people during the pandemic uh, brought in a pet for the first time, possibly didn't really know what they're getting themselves into. Consequently, we've seen a lot of pets being given up at places like Heavenly Creatures or SBCAs, what have you. Is that your experience? Um, we haven't seen a lot of that. What we are primarily seeing is um, the housing crisis affecting um, the animal situation badly because, as I've been saying for the last year, when animals, uh, sorry, I meant to say when humans struggle, their animals struggle. So what we're seeing now is between the housing crisis and, the, again, the situation with the economy, there are a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, Patty, having to give up their pets because they can't find anywhere to live. Um, like there's a woman who's moving in a few days. She's got two senior cats, and she's desperate for us or somebody to take them because she, they're moving because of low wages in the housing crisis. They're, uh, they're moving elsewhere in Canada, and they just can't take them with them. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that, a lot of people begging for us to house their animals temporarily. All the rescue groups are seeing that, and the city, I was talking to them about that a couple of days ago. The city shelter is getting a lot of requests for, you know, like, can you please house my animal or animals for you know a few weeks or a few months will I continue to try to find an apartment that will allow me to to have them like people calling and crying because again they, they've had these animals for years and years in some cases and they don't want to have to part with them but at the same time like actually in some cases people have told us you know they have children and they've been told well if you get um, into a situation obviously where you don't have anywhere to live because you're trying to hang on to your animal then we're going to take your children from you you know like you've got you got to have somewhere to live kind of thing. We also get a lot of requests now from social workers, again, for temporary housing um, or, again, because their client's looking to surrender their pet because they, they just can't look anymore. They have to take the apartment. Also for financial assistance for animals, like you, I don't think the public has any idea, as you and I are sitting here talking, how many animals are suffering for lack of that care. We get it all day, every day, and we help in as many cases as we can. So, again, I don't know if a lot of the public knows this, but we help low-income people with vet bills whenever we possibly can. We're pretty pretty tapped out right now, which is another reason why we need to resell the golfers. Um, it's heartbreaking. You know, people calling and saying, my dog has been sitting here for three days with a broken leg, and I, I can't, I just, you know, I just had to, to pay for food for my kids. I can't afford, you know, to take them in and even get them painkiller. So it's... It's bad out there right now, i got to say. And we know the relationship that people have with their pets. They are, in many cases, a part of the family, which brings along that emotional attachment. Uh, I'm late for the news, Jessica, but good luck oh, with yes, the fundraising no events. Go ahead. Thanks so much. Take okay, good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break for that newscast. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. Your Merry Christmas station is back. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Say good morning to the interim dean of Munns Medical School. That's Dr. Dolores McKean. Good morning, Dean McKean. You're on the air. Hey, Patty, thank you very much. Thanks for asking me to participate today. I'm happy to have you on the program. I appreciate your time. So there's a petition circulating regarding practice-ready assessments and the number of seats and how it works at Mons Med School. How does it work? 
So, Patty, um, thank you for that question. So, uh, just to say that Practice Ready Newfoundland is a dedicated group of uh, physicians and uh, uh, administrators who are part of a national organization uh, that assesses internationally trained medical graduates, or the acronym for that is IMG, or International Doctors. And we all know that international medical doctors or graduates are a very important part of our healthcare system and workforce. And really, uh, they can improve the access to healthcare for the patients of Newfoundland and Labrador. And so the PRA process is really intended to assess international medical graduates for their readiness um, to enter the Newfoundland workforce and be able to provide competent care and provide safe quality care. Because we all know that Newfoundland and Labradorians expect uh, that physicians in Canada will provide safe, competent care. So really the uh, Practice Ready Assessment Program uses national standards to ensure that uh, internationally trained doctors are ready uh, to practice in Newfoundland and join the workforce. Because as we know, Patty, uh, training of doctors can be different in different countries um, and places and medical schools outside of Canada. And we also have to ensure that uh, physicians who enter the workforce here in Newfoundland are up to date and that they are, uh, their skills are up to date if they've been out of the workforce for any length of time. And we also know that medical uh, knowledge changes and guidelines change, so we have to ensure that they are up to date on Canadian recommendations for how we treat and, and manage uh, medical conditions. So just to say that um, the licensure of family physicians in Newfoundland and Labrador involves many, many stakeholders, and it starts with the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Newfoundland and Labrador. So if an international doctor wants to come to Newfoundland to work, the first thing they have to do is apply to the college. And so the college will then assess their training and assess what we call their currency of training to see if they are eligible for a license. Uh, independently practicing physicians usually have a full license, um, sometimes international medical graduates can be deemed eligible for a provisional license. And uh, the college will sometimes uh, suggest that they have to have a practice-ready assessment. And so, as I said, that practice-ready assessment then really looks at uh, their, their currency of training, how long ago they were last practicing, and uh, what, their, what their medical school training looked like. So the, um, once, once they, uh, they get referred to the uh, new Practice Ready Newfoundland, there are several steps that they have to go through um, in order to be determined eligible to enter into the Practice Ready Assessment. And so there are some uh, national exams that they have to do, um, and uh, those exams uh, then, uh, and they have to go through a, an interview process with the, with the Practice Ready uh, Assessment Committee. So once they uh, go through that process and they're deemed eligible, then they have to go into a 12-week educational clinical field assessment. And again, that involves a pretty in-depth 12 weeks where we have very skilled uh, you know, clinicians and educators here in Newfoundland uh, that uh, observe the candidates uh, doing uh, various procedures. It involves uh, being able to take a history and physical, uh, to do basic uh, examinations and basic procedures that we would expect any family medicine physician in Newfoundland to do. That might include things like being assessed that they can do a well baby exam, that they can do well woman exams, or that they can do things like um, small procedures. 
they also have to be assessed around their emergency medicine skills and whether or not they, because um, some, sometimes in some uh, of our remote and rural locations, they have to provide emergency medical care. So they have to be able to do basic things uh, like being able to put in IVs, be able to intubate people, being able to handle a heart attack in a, in a remote and rural community. So all of that happens during a 12-week, what we call a clinical field assessment. And uh, that assessment follows a, a national common standard, a pan-Canadian model um, that is overseen by the Medical Council of Canada. How many so, seats do you have available for PRAs? So right now, sir, we have approximately 20 seats available per year. It's about 10 per cohort. Um, and so that's for that 12-week assessment, and that occurs uh, uh, twice a year. And uh, currently, right now, we have nine physicians that are uh, doing that clinical field assessment. There are also about 29 other applicants under review. So I know there have been some large numbers uh, sort of uh, uh, punted around in the media about, you know, hundreds of candidates that are waiting to be assessed. Uh, Patty, we have 29 applicants now that are currently under review. So we have nine that are going through the cohort right now. We have nine more that are ready pretty much ready to go for our winter cohort. We still have 10 more that are eligible for interview, and we have another 10 that are in the application process. So Is there, we are trying sorry, really go hard. Go ahead. We are trying really, really hard to uh, get these applica- applicants through, and we know that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are, are really dependent upon this, as well as our regular medical school graduates. So 20 seats, 10 per cohort, uh, twice a year. Is there any consideration to adding uh, a third to the cycle? Because you could do as many as four if we're talking about 48 weeks out of 52. So any consideration to add a third cycle? So, Patty, we've looked at the uh, resources that we have available to us and the length of time it takes for us to process. So even though it seems like we're only working uh, uh, two weeks, so 24 weeks out of the year, in actual fact, uh, the, the actual process of the field assessment takes 12 weeks, but there are many steps that lead up to that 12-week process. So I think uh, from a, a capacity point of view, we would not probably be able to offer more uh, uh, cycles, but what we can do and what we're looking at doing, Patty, is actually trying to increase the number of cohorts. So we would still have two cycles, but instead of uh, 10, we're trying to look at increasing that capacity up to 12 or 15 per cohort, which would hopefully supply between 20 and 30 new positions for the province. After the completion of the 12-week clinical field assessment, does there is there a target where that doctor would then move? You know, I've seen reference in the Medical Council of Canada say that after completion, success, successful candidates would do return of service in rural parts of the province. Is that how it works here? That's correct, sir. Yep, they would have a return of service contract, and they would have uh, the health authority is is responsible for that, and they would be looking to uh, you know they they initially sponsor these candidates, and then they're responsible for for placing them uh, in their jobs uh, sites throughout uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. There's another issue out there regarding simply an internationally trained doctor, but a Canadian-born citizen who trains abroad, we'll say in Ireland or Australia, what have you, and the difficulty with getting a residency position in Canada. How does it work? Because there's only 17 medical schools in Canada, and we know that the medical schools here would like to see their trained doctors get the priority for a residency position, but we're all clamoring for more and more doctors, whether it be family doctors or various subspecialties. So how does it work for the Canadians who are born here but trained abroad to get a residency position? 
so uh, Patty, the number of po- what, what's called, those are called postgraduate training positions, right? So the number of those postgraduate training positions are equivalent to the number of undergraduate medical uh, seats that we have. So the number of postgraduate training positions, or those are called CARM seats, are actually equivalent to our undergraduate training positions. So if we invest and put money into training uh, medical students here in Canada, then we also have to be able to provide them with that postgraduate training position, okay? And so the number of training positions that we have are about one to five for every undergraduate uh, medical doctor that we produce. So the first round of those matches are are allocated to the Canadians who are in Canadian medical schools. We can't invest in those undergraduate medical seats without ensuring that we have uh, the appropriate number of postgraduate seats available to them. Any of those uh, seats that remain unfilled after the first match then go to internationally trained medical graduates. And so uh, we are recently uh, trying to increase the number of those uh, postgraduate training seats to internationally trained medical graduates as well as our Canadian medical graduates. And most recently, we've increased our family medicine training positions by an extra five seats. So internationally trained medical graduates who have trained abroad in other medical schools, we are trying to increase that access. But we do have to ensure that the taxpayers' money that are paid for the Canadian trainees, that they also have to have seats as well. Of course, lots of talk about family doctors. You know, there's a shortage. Millions of Canadians don't have access to a family doctor. A lot of different things have been attempted. Collaborative care clinics, primary care teams, virtual care expansion. And we know Munns Medical School has expanded from 80 seats to 90 seats, which means 10 additional seats from people for people from this province. But in the world of family medicine, what kind of conversations happened at Munns Med School when the National College of Family Doctors was talking about adding an additional year residency going from two to three? They've since backed away from it based on a variety of concerns. And whether or not we'll keep people from wanting to uh, be a family doctor. Well, how did the conversation go at your school? So, Patty, we obviously want to ensure that we provide the best trained family medicine physicians we can. And there have been some concerns raised about um, the the feeling of family doctors uh, being ready to go out um, to work after two years of training. We certainly know that there um, is a is a lot of uh, you know sort of need, and we we looked at the impact of what that third year would have. And so uh, we have uh, had the discussions with the uh, as deans of medicine. We've had the discussion with the College of Family Physicians as to how we can best support that. But Patty, we know that the the physicians that we produce here within our family medicine program are extremely strong candidates. They are physicians who are uh, engaged and they are ready to go out and work in remote and rural locations. And we have a very strong uh, track record, Patty, of keeping those family doctors here in the province um, to um, to uh, uh, stay and work within the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. So um, we are happy, to be honest, that there has been a pause um, in that third year because we have been worried about, uh, A, what would that do in terms of uh, uh, being able to uh, uh, turn out new doctors, but as well, it also does in, impact our ability to teach because uh, those uh, physicians would would be in the educational system for an extra year. 
But regardless, Patty, uh, you know, we are committed to uh, ensuring that uh, the Memorials Medical School uh, provides as many family doctors uh, to uh, meet the needs of Newfoundland and Labrador, and that we uh, train an excellent family physician who is extremely competent and confident to work in our environment. You know, some people may indeed think that a family doctor, a GP, would be the lower rung on the ladder of doctors and specialties and surgeons and what have you, when in fact the complexity of the offerings that they would have to deal with day in and day out with their patient roster is extraordinary. How does it work after a graduation during your family doctor residency? You know, I'm often told that, well, they have to leave to get that additional supervision of a couple of years before they can set up their own clinic. Is that what happens or how does it actually work? No, no, Patty. To be honest with you, uh, the family doctors that we train here in Newfoundland are fully licensed. And, you know, this thought that uh, family medicine uh, doctors or family practice doctors are lesser, that's an old-fashioned way of thinking, Patty. For sure. We don't, we don't think that anymore. And in actual fact, we actually call our family uh, family practice colleagues, or they're actually specialists in family medicine, because they absolutely, 100%, are the face of uh Increasing age in population, increasing complexity of care, um, and uh, and uh, you know patients that have extremely complex problems. And we know, Patty, that family doctors are the gatekeepers uh, to uh, getting into some of the medical care, uh, into specialty care. But really, the focus, uh, I think, in modern medicine now, Patty, is, is that uh, it's primary health care and generalism that uh, promotes health and wellness of our, of our populations. And if we can actually uh, have primary care as our focus and prevention as our focus, which is what our family doctors are, are trained and specialized in, that that will actually uh, promote healthier communities and prevent illness and then the downstream effects of that. So uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador and here at Memorial uh, Faculty of Medicine, we absolutely value our family medicine colleagues and uh, they provide a significant amount of teaching and education here at the Faculty of Medicine as well, which um, is probably part of the reason why our Memorial graduates are so well-trained and well-equipped to, to work and stay in Newfoundland and Labrador. There is a family friend of ours that is in med school at this very moment, but thinking about maybe family medicine, but the complications of learning how to set up your own clinic, basically be a subcontractor of the government, the overhead, the administrative burden. What do you think that it is a hurdle for people considering family medicine? You know, uh, it is challenging, but uh, throughout our uh, medical school training and throughout our family medicine residency program, there is actually formal curricula on how to set up practices and practice management. And there are also supports for new graduates out there who want to start the family practice, uh, uh, their own private practice, uh, family medicine practice clinics, to be able to, to give them those skill sets and knowledge as to how to set up the practice and really run a business. And as well, we also know, Patty, that the Newfoundland government, through the Health Accord, is setting up uh, family care teams, um, which uh, you know has uh, some supports around uh, creating uh, you know these uh, these clinics and practices within the health authority as well. So there are many options and many supports out there. Not saying that there, it's not challenging, but uh, we are uh, trying to ensure that our graduates are uh, skilled and ready to, to take on the business aspects of their practice as well. We'll leave it there. I mean, I would have another half hour worth of conversation for you this morning, but really appreciate your time. and Hopefully we can do this again in the future. 
Yep, I absolutely appreciate the opportunity, Patty. And uh, just to let you know that, um, you know, the the physicians and educators here at the Memorial University um, are trying our darndest to meet the needs. And we know that, uh, you know, patients are out there and they, they need family physicians. And uh, we are working collaboratively with the health authority and with the Newfoundland government and with the Memorial University to try to increase our capacity and try to produce the best physicians that are able to uh, respond to the demands and needs of the uh, population of Newfoundland and Labrador. Before I let you go, any thoughts on the expansion of virtual care? Because, of course, the gold standard would be an in-person visit with your health care provider, nurse practitioner, and or medical doctor. But it looks like virtual care is here to stay and will indeed be expanded. Your thoughts? You know what, virtual care uh, definitely has its benefits and there are definitely some cons as well, but it certainly uh, is able to increase access to services and particularly in remote and rural locations, but it certainly has to be set up in the proper way and ensure that, uh, that there, uh, you know, that there is uh, access to in-person services should they be needed. So there's definitely a role for both, Patty, um, and as you say, it's here to stay, so uh, we are ensuring that we are uh, educating our learners and our physicians so that they're able to incorporate that into their practice and uh, and and be able to uh, use the best of both worlds is what I would say, Patty. Really appreciate your time this morning, Dr. McKean. My pleasure, Patty. Thank you very much for those great questions and really appreciate your time and uh, have a good day. The very same to you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. There's the interim dean of Mons Medical School, Dr. Dolores McKean. Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Joanne, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Um, um, hi, Patty. Um, my name is Joanne, as you know, and I'm a first-time caller, and I really didn't uh, want to have to make this call, really, but uh, it's an issue that my husband and I have been dealing with since around 2018. And uh, we do live on the southern shore, and uh, we live, uh, we've lived here where our house was built in 1990 and registered, our land was registered in 1993. So we've been here 33 years and we have enjoyed, you know, being able to drive down our driveway and come to this beautiful piece of property that looks out at the islands and, um, and a pond near us. But since 2018, uh, I have to say that the harassment and intimidation by neighbors has escalated. So they have land on one side of our driveway. Our driveway is in the middle, and then there's another family that has land on the other side. So there's always been access to our property dating back like over a century, even though our house was the first one to be built here. But and the the neighbors in um, they have registered a parcel of land within the past few years that not only includes their own property it took in our driveway and it took in the land on the other side that's belonging to another person they registered in the other people registered it in 1989 and so I have to say that. The harassment and intimidation is escalating. And the last thing that they've done is that they've blocked our driveway since Saturday. Now, there is a, there is a turnaround there, 
but they have a lot of logs piled up very close to it. So you really have to be careful maneuvering up, going up and coming down. And the other issue is that we need an oil truck to come down, and they usually will come straight down. So it will be hard for them to maneuver around where this uh, turnaround is and pass these logs. And we have no one who can help us with it. So what's the root of this? We don't have anything to do with it. What started all of this? Well, it didn't really start. Like, we didn't hear anything from them about, even when we built down here, there was no interference with them uh, right up until a few, I'd say 2017 or 2018. That's when it started, and they're saying that it, the land belongs to them. So has any of this been tested in court, or are the police involved? The police do not get involved. They, I have called them about this, uh, you know, um, barricade. First it was a barricade. Now, it's, now they have the ve- a vehicle there. And um, we do we do have a lawyer on it. Yes, we do. But you know, there's you know, we if there was an emergency, we're both senior people here. We're active seniors, but in the case of an emergency, I don't know what we would do because there doesn't seem to be anyone who can like blocking someone's um, entrance driveway is not a criminal criminal offence. And when you did make reference to uh, harassment, so beyond this piling of these logs for whatever purpose, I mean, is there verbal altercations between the two homes? Well, the thing is that there's been, yes, you know, going back, there's been lots of unwanted um, verbal behavior from them. There has been. And... You know, like, we are concerned. We're concerned for our safety and the safety of our land because it's just, it's after getting out of hand, really, it has. So what exactly are you asking the lawyer to do, to for once and for all put it to bed who owns the property so we can all move on, or what exactly is the lawyer working on? Yes, we, well, we, we would like to be able to keep our access that we have. That's been here, like, since before 1925. So the lawyer is, yeah, the only way, hello? I'm listening. Oh, okay, I got That is the only way that the police will get involved, I was told. When they have information from a lawyer stating about this land, uh, then they can step in, they said. But they can't do anything about them, you know, blocking this uh, blocking our entrance and exit, you know? Yeah, well, as they say, there's no better neighbor than a tall fence sometimes. Uh, Joanne, I'm really... Yes, I have have heard that. Yeah, Yeah. it's unfortunate this is happening to you. Hopefully cooler heads prevail and this gets settled by our lawyer, Tooth Sweet. I appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything before I get to the news? No, that's it. Um, I just wanted to put it out there. And thank you for listening. My pleasure. I appreciate the call, and hopefully this works out. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Joanne. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, sometimes, man, neighbors. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, George, you're next. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line six. George, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thank you. How about you? Good. Um, I just wanted to uh, spend a couple minutes speaking about the, um, I guess, situation regarding uh, the inhabitants of Tent City, as it's become to be called, Mm -hmm. and um, what I can only describe as an absolute disgrace in response, collective response, uh, by not just governing officials at the municipal and provincial level, but all elected officials. I mean, I heard a comment yesterday of someone who drove by and said, quote, unquote, oh, they're still there. Well, that they are sons and daughters of somebody. They are. My, they could easily be my sons and daughters. They could easily be yours as well. Life doesn't always, you know, those, those curveballs that come at us can, uh, can be pretty daunting at times. I mean, to try and unearth and figure out, you know, the precarity of homelessness is going to take a lot longer than the show today and the show tomorrow. Right now, you have got people, people, citizens of our province, uh, both preventing, you know, fall under the provincial government wing and fall under municipal wing within the city. And they are living in downpour of rainstorms and they're living in change of temperatures and it's an absolute abomination that, you know, take, for example, Minister Abbott alluded to, well, when when asked about, you know, porta-potties being made available, well, we're trying to resolve it in a way that um, addresses housing and more stable accommodations. Various agencies, I mean, End Homelessness, Thrive, Newfoundland Labrador Housing are on that piece, but yet we're, it's not even a basic human right anymore. You have to ask permission to go pee? I mean, how disgraceful is that? If this were, say, for example, remember a couple of years ago, um, several government officials were out in Long Harbor celebrating some, you know, significant accomplishment, and all with minted hard hats on, fresh gloves and work boots. So if they all suddenly open a new washroom facility out there, are they all going to be posing for the photo op with a roll of toilet paper? I mean, this is disgraceful. It really is. Like, we're better than that. We're definitely better than that. As a, as a collective community, let alone from the Premier's office, and now I know that they're listening because, oh, oh, how's this going to spin? From the Premier's office on down to the Mayor's office, down to the independent elective officials. Carry that on down to the overabundant representation of real estate uh, brokers and agents on city council, but yet they can't get a porta potty in there. They can't provide a sense of decency where decency is the last thing that they should even have to fight for. I mean, you look at, for example, in 2004 when tsunami hit Indonesia, Canada was part of an international effort, the DART uh, organization or the DART team, that went into a contaminated area and took rancid water and salt water and turned it into 99% pure water to drink in almost record speed. But yet we can't find a place, go behind the bush, or they're still there. I mean, what we've seen as a galvanized uh, approach, uh, a polarized approach from provincial and from uh, uh, municipal leaders, if you will, and all, all peoples in between, is not my zoo, not my monkeys. 
I mean, it's, it's absolutely baffling. It's baffling. I, I really don't know how, how, in good conscience, any elected official can say to their executive assistant at the end of a workday, okay, good night, have a good evening, drive home, look over their shoulder, oh, they're still there, have some eat fresh or pick up takeout on the way home, pour refreshment in front of the fireplace, and bemoan how difficult their day was. The problem has I mean, been. I, I, I don't mean. I don't mean to rant, but I think it's worthy of rant. Fair enough. The problem has just grown over the past few decades. Now we find ourselves at the so-called breaking point, if we already haven't been there for a number of years. The whole concept of how we think about housing has changed dramatically. It went from the federal government being intimately involved with affordable housing targets. 30 years ago, we kind of just stopped doing it. And now, consequently, housing is not a place to live, a place to lay your head. Housing is a contributor to GDP. We measure economic success by housing housing starts. It's the biggest piece of equity the vast majority of us will ever have, as opposed to it's a place to live. So it's a monumental mindset that has to shift before we, you know, figure this out in a long-term solution. Even some of the programs that have been put forward here, not a whole lot is out there to talk about the circumstances which led to people being in that precarious position to live in a tent behind the colonial building. So while we figure out long-term permanent housing solutions and look at what actually works in other places, you know, the concept of permanent solution being permanent housing being the go-to versus the staircase model that we have here you're homeless then we put you in an emergency shelter then you get temporary housing and then if you're lucky enough you get permanent housing and what that costs us enormous sums of money societally morally and financially versus if and when you find yourself in a circumstance where homelessness is your lot in life permanent housing is available immediately in Helsinki they figure that they with their model they save about 15,000 euro per person with the way they do business because it ha- comes with a cost with social services, uh, the healthcare system, and likely and uh, possibly the criminal justice system. The most expensive things in this country are those three. So we just have to figure out how we change our mindset on approaching this issue. Then if you get into the root causes and or the reasons why people find themselves in that position, there's a good program that the province has just launched this past January, the employment stabilization process. 170 people in the metro region joined up to this one. It gave them up to 250 bucks for, you know, up front expenses to buy work boots or whatever and then financial incentives to be in the workforce and consequently maybe being able to avoid being in one of these tents so between getting people you know what they need to be able to support themselves and figuring out our housing mindset we're just a long way away from where we need to be absolutely and i mean all the the points that you touch on there are significant and they are part of a long-term planning process and but at the same time now what do we do in the do in the immediacy what do we do to the child who has no winter boots we provide them winter boots what do we do you know in it's great to have cruise ships galore coming in the harbor and contribute to the financial backbone of the community but i mean we're not going to be measured by how we walk with the grape we're going to be measured by how we sit with the broken I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'll conclude on this point. Um, I'll age myself. We recall the program MASH, and Hawkeye was a very passionate doctor, and he found his way into the peace talks between North and South Korea. Thank goodness Henry Kissinger wasn't involved. But And he barged in and said to the people there, you know what you have to do. Why can't you do it? And I think something as simple, a basic human need, not even a want, a basic human need, surely to God we can get to that point.
It's a, it's a stopgap, but we can do that much. Where there's a will, there's a way. Absolutely. Patty, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Appreciate yours, George. Thank you. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Barry, you're on the air. How are you doing today, sir? Grant, how about you? Uh, not bad. I'm calling in today in regards to, uh, uh, well, several times that I went to the dump and just forgot here in uh, in Herb Grace. And uh, so the uh, last couple of days is, you know, uh, weather coming up and whatnot, so it wasn't open. Uh, yesterday was a not a day that it's open. So the uh, operations, hours operation uh, is uh, Tuesday and to Thursday, I think it's 12 or 12.30, 12.30 to, uh, to 4 o'clock, uh, if, I'm, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I've been looking at my phone, but uh, in so Tuesday, I went there, uh, and I guess I don't have an app, but I'm going to put one on there. And I went there, and it was uh, closed. And uh, at that time, our weather wasn't uh, bad here. And um, so um, it was closed because of weather that was up, up and coming. And, you know, if you look at the hours operation, I don't know of uh, very many businesses or any businesses, for that matter, that open up 12 o'clock in daytime. Um, usually it is a, is a nine-to-five operation. And, uh, you know, I figured us taxpayers who are paying the taxes uh, pays for that dump to operate. And, um, you know... No matter how much taxes we're paying out to dish out for that dump, we're probably still paying the same amount to have it open nine to five. So, do they rotate staff in Harbor Grace from one job to another, which includes an afternoon shift at the dump? Is that what goes on? Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, and I asked that Eastern Waste Services why is the dump not open there? Because most places, you know, I, I'm from Goose Bay, and the dump, the dump is open uh, nine to five. Uh, as far as I know, and you know, most places are open nine to five, and it. Um, so there was a lot of people lined up there. Came from God knows where, maybe Western Bay to Timbuktu, um, but they came and they had a load of stuff aboard the truck. I mean, loaded right up, and uh, they couldn't remove their stuff. So, like, what if you had to pay someone to um, bring that stuff there and the short operations? Uh, now you got to turn around and go pay someone again to bring um, your construction items that they probably tore your house up with. And uh, so it leaves a person in a, in a bad spot that don't have a vehicle. I got one, but I'm speaking for others that might not, and to bring that stuff to the dump depending on someone else. So there's a very short window of operation, and I'm sure that the taxpayers, you know, are paying to... Uh, uh, paying the bill for that for that dump uh, uh, around this area, general area, and no matter if it's open for from twelve to four, uh, it's still going to be paying. They're probably still paying the same amount of tax money for to have that uh, dump operating. So I, you know, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, well maybe not Monday if they work Saturday, but at least have it open Tuesday uh, to Thursday. 
Uh, and then Wednesday, not even uh, Tuesday and Thursday, is not, not even open Wednesday. Yeah, Robinhood Bay, for instance, is open 8 to 4. So it was a full so-called business day to get to uh, the dump here in town. And you know full well what happens. If it's not, you know, accommodating hours of operations, what are people doing? They're throwing it in the woods. Yes, and that's what I said to Eastern Waste Services. I said, I'm sitting here right now. Uh, the dump is closed down. There's a sofa alongside of me on the road. I said, I was raised right that, are, uh, you know, if you had garbage, it goes to the dump. If you borrowed something, you brought it back. And uh, that's the way we were raised. So we don't throw our stuff on the side or, or the road or in the woods or whatever the case may be. We're not like that. Our family was raised differently. And um, so anyways, in any case, I said, I'm sitting here alongside of a couch here on the side of the road with a couch in the back of my truck that someone put in there waiting for to get dumped off here. And I said, I'm after being back to the dump now two days in a row. And I said, it's not open. And I said, here I am here on Wednesday. And they said, well, we're not open on Wednesday. So, well, you weren't open on Tuesday. So you would figure, okay, because of weather, inclement weather or whatever, you know, shut, shut you down, you would think that Wednesday you would open it up because they got paid for Tuesday going to work. But, <laughs> well, I'm assuming. And, uh, and, and they didn't go to work. Yeah, strange set of circumstances. I don't know why there would be such limited uh, opportunity at the Harbour Grace dump, but I appreciate the uh, time and the the concern. Barry, thanks for the call. I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels that way. You know, it's taxpayers' money. Right. And uh, no matter if you are if you got it open for those couple of days, you're still paying the same amount of tax money to have that dump operating. And so I see that, you know, it should be operating from at least Tuesday to Friday. Uh, and then, you know, you got your Saturday, and if they work Saturday, well, I could see them have Monday off because some dumps are calls on Monday. Yeah, including Robin Hood Bay, I'm pretty sure. I uh, appreciate the call, Barry. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Final word this morning goes to, oh, here we go, line number three. Good morning, Brenda Chater. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going today? Great today. You? Good, good. I good. Just heard from one of the uh, staff that uh, Heavenly Creatures were looking for some help. Yep. Yeah, so uh, the crowd up here at the Hair Connection and the spa, Sam Shara, uh, we decided to put together um, uh, a little um, um, gift certificate run here. Uh, you can win $350 uh, in gift certificate. Uh, great for Christmas presents and um, to give. Um, to your best friend, or you can use them all yourself. So what we're going to do, Patty, is we're reaching out to everybody, and we're going to call it Pack the Porch. As you know, i got a big lobby up here, so everybody who drops off something for Heavenly Creatures can automatically um, they fill out a, um, a form, and they can get um, a chance to win a $350 worth of gift certificate. So if I drop off anything at all, like pet food or what have you, what exactly are you Whatever asking? you want, whatever Heavenly Creatures need. Apparently they got a list on, online also yep. of what they, uh, they uh, want, but I'm sure they're not going to turn down anything. Even cash. They'll take cash, Patty. Absolutely right. Everyone's taking cash. Cash is king. So, is uh, king. of course, Brenda's operation is right there on Stavanger Drive, just across from the exit of Carrick Drive onto Stavanger the big green building so if you want to drop blue, something Patty. off ah it's blue Patty. it's blue is it yeah so therefore you need a Christ. haircut it's been a while since you've been in yeah i do need a haircut as a matter of fact i just told dave something you've said to me in the past i got the two rolled up sleeping bags above my ears here now so that kind of go 
Anyway, looking forward to seeing everybody. Uh, we're just getting all the tickets printed now, um, or all the ballots printed, so everybody can put their name and number in. And um, and I think what we're going to do too, Patty, uh, starting um, uh, Monday, is we're going to have a draw every Monday between now and, and uh, Christmas. So there'll be more than one draw, like for different prizes throughout. Terrific. Very generous of you and your staff. I appreciate the time, Brenda. I'll see you soon. All right, buddy. Thanks. Thank Bye. You. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Local business. Here's the plea of one group or another and springs into action. Great stuff. So a chance to win 350 bucks for gift certificates. That's a lot of Manny petties and hairdos inside of that 350 So good for the folks up at Sam Shara and the Hair Connection. All right. And, you know, we mentioned in the dump. <laughs> so if you Google up Robin Hood Bay, uh, like, for instance, if you wanted to load up your rig to drop off whatever you need, recycling or otherwise, down at the dump, there's actually a sidebar on Google where it'll tell you how busy it is. Like, I just popped it in there just for a laugh, and it comes up and says, live, less busy than usual. People are spending less than 10 minutes to do their business at Robinhood Bay. All right, final check on the Twitter. Wherever you see open line, follow us there. Email address is openlinefvocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.